If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the Force. Welcome, everyone. My name is Devor, and you're listening to Episode 7 of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. As always, if this is your first episode, first off, you picked a really good point to start. But also, do make sure to go back through the catalog of earlier episodes. We've got episodes on lightsaber duels, Palpatine, Yoda, Star Wars in history, Star Wars in philosophy, video games. No two episodes are alike. I can promise you that. This week, we will be taking a look back at something in Star Wars that is very near and dear to my own heart, and that is the television show Star Wars Rebels, which aired from 2014 to 2018 on Disney XD. And this time, when I say we, I really do mean we. Joining me to talk about this little show that could are none other than the dynamic duo of Force Toast, a Star Wars happy hour. Miss Alice, Miss Laura, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, I like that intro. Thank you. (laughs) Seriously, that sounds like so polished. I'm like, Alice and I intro our show and we're just like, so tell me about how your foot's peeling today. Like, it's so... (laughs) That's all right. I mean, like, one of the things I like about your guys' intro is like, it captures that like Star Wars aesthetic of like the in-media res that like you start with like something already happening. As opposed yeah, to that's, like a pure that's the start. idea. Yeah, we like yeah. to get people into it. It feel make it. It kind of makes it. The idea of our show is that it sort of makes it feel like oh, you just like ran into two friends at a bar. Right. Right. Yeah, but it's great. Um. So yeah, Alice and I uh, host our our little show that we started. God, it's like coming up on I guess two years in February. Yeah, you're almost um, up on episode fifty. Yeah, which sounds like a weird thing to say. Um, but yeah, we drink wine and talk about Star Wars, and that's basically the gist of it. Um, we play Star Wars trivia at the end of every episode. We generally talk about like what's in the news, and then if there's like a new book or a new TV show or a new something out, we'll do um, you know, we'll have a little segment called Recap on Tap, where we go through that in kind of a fun, silly sometimes not so accurate way um we do the best we can and it um yeah it's it's a really fun show alice and i met doing star wars trivia a few years back and yeah just it just kind of rolled into this oh my god that was like three years ago right december shit fuck oh wow wow yeah it was right after the last jedi came out it was the week after oh okay so you, you guys met in like the dark times of the fandom. <laughs> the very post- true. <laughs> yeah. We found the light in the dark in each other, though. So it worked out very well. Um, and we were able to that, I, I guess Alice has probably missed a lot of the dark times because she wasn't actively on Twitter until like closer to when we actually launched our launched our show. Right. So, Alice, I did you you probably didn't experience as much of the negativity, at least at first. Right. I didn't know how to use Twitter. Laura had to teach me. And um, I have a thousand followers now. So that's cool. Yay. Yay. Uh, look at her. Look at you go. Oh, Very like nice. a girl grown up. Oh, mm-hmm. I should also add that Laura is also the co-host of The Jedi Way, which you can find on YouTube. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that she is also the queen of Star Wars trivia. Long may she reign. 
Oh, thank you. I appreciate that very much. Yeah, I started um, hosting a show on John Roca's YouTube channel with him. He and I talk about usually like a sort of big picture idea of something that's going on in Star Wars. Um, sometimes we talk about news, sometimes we don't. It just kind of, we're, we're still kind of figuring it out, which is fun. Um, we recently had our first live episode. I think we're going to be doing one live episode a month. Uh, but right now we release every other week or so on his YouTube channel. So yeah, check out the Jedi way. Thank you for that, Devor. I appreciate the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> we all need those reminders sometimes. All right. So I thought as by way of introduction for you guys, you've already talked a little bit about just now about like the origins of Force Toast and how you guys met and so on. But I wonder if you could just step back and talk a little bit about each of yours respective journeys into Star Wars. So basically, how did you become a fan? How did your fandom evolve and so on? Just by way of a kind of icebreaker to the listeners. All right, cool. So this is Alice, just uh, in case you're not used to my voice yet. Mm. But I have always been into kind of the kind of dorky things, you know, with Star Wars, when I was very little, I'm pretty confident that the Disney Channel used to play the Ewok movies, and I loved watching them every time they were on TV. We used to steal the Disney Channel with some little switchy box because you used to have to pay for it. And they were on all the time, and I fucking loved them because, you know, the little girl Sindel on it, she's like four or something, and I was a little, you know, I was like four in the late 80s, early 90s. And then one day I'm flipping through channels at my grandmother's house, and it's like TNT or TBS or one of those, you know, where they just always play Star Wars. And I just like flipping through channels and I see the Ewoks and I'm just like, fuck yeah, Ewoks. Yes. <laughs> it was it was Return of the Jedi, um, which, you know, I discovered later. And then after that, you know, they had those re-releases and the Taco Bell toys. And then I think out of the prequels, the only one I actually saw in theaters at release time was Revenge of the Sith. But I've kind of always always been into it. I was super into Lord of the Rings for a long time as well on Harry Potter. And I stumbled back into Star Wars, I guess, about three and a half years ago because I was just so stressed at work. And I was like, okay, I work from home. I just want something on in the background. It'll be great. And I was trying to pick between Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, or Star Wars just, you know, to have something relaxing where I, I knew what was going to happen. And I picked Star Wars. And then that all of a sudden led into listening to podcasts and reading the books and deciding to go off on my own and try my hand at trivia and comics. And it just kind of snowballed from there. <laughs> what about you, Laura? Uh, my story started a little bit later than Alice's. So I really didn't become a big Star Wars fan until like 2015. And at that point, I had only seen uh, The Phantom Menace. And it was one of those things where, like, I I'm, I was kind of like Alice, where, like, I sort of always had a home in the geek space. I always had a fandom that I was into. And I, at the time that I discovered Star Wars, I didn't have a fandom. And so, you know, there was, that, there was a hole that needed to be filled. And so I, uh, I ended up sitting down and being like, all right, I got to actually, like, watch these just for, like, my own, you know, film education, my own education as like a human being living on planet Earth. I need to actually have seen Star Wars because otherwise, I mean, just an incomplete person. So <laughs> I uh, I sat down and watched them all start to finish, you know, in release order, really enjoyed them more than I thought that I would. And I think I remember like telling myself like, oh, yeah, I, these movies are really fun. I really enjoy them. Um, I don't I'm not gonna like 
go watch the cartoons or anything. Like cartoons are for kids. That's that would just be crazy. I'm just gonna like probably watch these over and over again because now I feel like I gotta catch up. And then something led me to watching Star Wars Rebels, and I don't know what it was, but I started watching that show in probably 2015, maybe even 2016 is when I finally got into it. And that show was like really what solidified my place in the Star Wars fandom because I, for some reason, just latched onto that story in such a huge way. And maybe it was because it was like new episodes were coming out at that time. And so I was able to like follow along with like people on Twitter and I found other people who were had this sort of shared love for this show and for this universe. And because it was like a new thing that I was discovering and watching this new thing with other fans, it I think that really sort of solidified my place in the Star Wars fandom. So that's always been my favorite part of Star Wars when it comes to like ranking the movies and things like that. Like I, I did go back and watch the Clone Wars, but like Star Wars Rebels is at the top of my list, every list that I have. All right. Yeah. So I, I had a, a similar sort of like attitude as you did, Laura, about like the cartoons where I did think of it as for like younger kids. And I didn't get into them in until 2018. And my actual catalyst was Solo. It was actually the Darth Maul cameo of all things in Solo. Like I'd known sort of just in the background that like he was still that he had like survived Phantom Menace and so on. But then when I saw it, when they put him into the movie, I was like, OK, I got to actually figure out what the whole story is. And that got me back into Clone Wars and then Rebels and so on. So, yes, yeah, so I'm a latecomer to that as well. Oh, my God. I didn't know that you were like that recent of uh, like a fan of the animation. So you hadn't seen any of the animated series before Solo came out? No, it was all summer 2018. Like, I oh my god, that's so wild! I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow, yeah. yeah. I kind of wondered what people who saw Maul and hadn't watched Clone Wars kind of what that feeling was like. I mean, yeah, what and- what went through your mind? I mean, for my case, like, I already had the background knowledge that, like, he was alive, so it was not shocking for me in that way. In the sense of, like, oh my god, I had no idea about this whole like extra canon over here where like Maul is still a character. So it was not shocking in that way. It was mainly shocking that I was like they actually did this in a feature movie where like they made this move that like is going to go over the heads of like conservatively like 90 percent of the the viewers yeah Um, that's what i would guess too i think that's accurate yeah like my surprise was more on that than it was on the like darth maul's actually alive It, it, it was a really like ballsy move on their part it was and i think i think maybe like in a way, like in retrospect, it may have been a bit of a fail. I don't know if that was really the right way to go. Like, I, I'm ecstatic to see Maul. I love the idea of like getting more content in that same time period within this universe and with those characters. But like, I'm, you know, like you said, like we're small, we're a pretty small minority of the fandom, the people who are so hardcore that they like knew that Maul was alive and really appreciated that surprise at the end of the movie. I think it it does have the like classic feel of like something that is there to set up the next movie. It sort of feels like the Marvel post credit like during the movie. Yeah, 100%. so yeah, I think that's probably why. I think probably when they inserted it, they kind of had there in their mind that there were going to be future movies and so on. That like even if you hadn't seen Clone Wars or Rebels, would kind of cue you into Maul's place in the universe at the time. But obviously. That is yet not manifested, and we'll see what John James and Lacey over at Resistance Broadcast are able to eventually conjure up with their own movement for solo sequels. Yeah, exactly. I'm here for it. I just kind of want to see yeah. more of Kira, to be honest. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she's a really compelling character, and I hope that they do something with her in some capacity so we find out actually what happens to her. I remember at Celebration being so jealous of all the chicks with the black 
or is it a dark burgundy? The deep V-neck, long formal dress. Ah, I loved it. Oh I yeah, it yeah. So bad. That she has on the on the ship. Yeah, yeah. It's gorgeous. I think it's navy blue. Maybe we're all wrong. People are like, <laughs> it's it's hot pink. What did you all miss? Like, <laughs> it's like the dress that went around on. It was like a meme a few years ago. Like, oh yeah, and it, everyone it like, just has a different version of what that looks like. <laughs> yeah, That's what right. were the options? And then it ended up. It was golden blue, golden like royal blue or something. Yeah, and then it ended up actually being white. Yeah, I don't remember. Oh, that, was, that was, but yeah, that's nuts. But yeah, it would be great to see more of Kira. Great to see more of Kira fashion. We we need a little bit of that, I think, especially right now. I could use a little bit of Kira fashion here in 2020. Oh, totally. Just saying. <laughs> yes. And uh, speaking of internet memes, I sort of feel like, you know that one that's been going around on Twitter like the last couple of weeks, the like how it started, how it's going meme? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I feel like this right now, like this episode is like that meme. Because like, you know, not too long ago, I was just a lowly like forced host reply guy. And now here you are on my own show. I wouldn't call you lowly no. by any means <laughs> We always refer to you as, as Dr. DeVore, so I'm feeling very informal right now calling you DeVore, but I'm also sitting here like not wearing pants, so there's, you know, there's also that. Yeah. It all ties back. <laughs> yeah, and the Yoda voice, amazing. Yes. Thank yeah. you. DeVore Thank did a wonderful you. impression of Yoda on our show when I tried to get Alice to do one, and she wouldn't, and that's fair, because if I think we were in the opposite situation and you were like, do a Yoda voice, I'd be like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, for a minute, I thought, I was like, oh my god, are people going to think I'm faking my voice like Elizabeth Holmes and the inventor? <laughs> you know? <laughs> because... They asked her to do Yoda, and she's like, no, I'm not doing Yoda. I'm like, well, yeah, because you can't do an impersonation of a voice doing an impersonation of a voice. Right. It'd be so and hard. And it's just impersonation inception. You can't have that. No. Hard pass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. So let us get into the main topics. Let's start talking about Rebels. So I feel that for the whole time that it aired, even until now, Rebels has kind of inevitably lived in the shadow of its like bigger older sibling which is the clone wars and i feel like you know when you look at like how people talk about rebels um, particularly if you look like star wars twitter and so on it's one of these shows that's like i've struggled to find the exact word for it like i wouldn't call it like polarizing because that almost brings to mind like last jedi or rise of skywalker and it's not yeah. really in that camp you can maybe say underrated but i feel like underrated is an overused word so i don't know it has this like status where like you see people like knocking let's say like the animation style or like saying that like the characters aren't likable which like i do not understand that critique i don't know what version of rebels they watched but yeah it's got this kind of strange murky status within the fandom i feel like but on this show the party line is star wars rebels is great so we are starting from that premise and so before we get into any of the like particular episodes and arcs and characters and so on, I wanted to take a kind of 30,000 foot view of Rebels and just talk a little bit about like what makes Rebels great? Like what are some of the things that it does right? Like what are some of the kind of ingredients to its success? So I wanted, I'd like to hear from the both of you about like what do you think makes this show so great? What does it do right? Well, I think the main ingredient of what makes it so good is Dave Filoni. I I think without a doubt, he's got to be like, you know, the list of ingredients and the things that it has the most of, that's at the top. And I think, you know, Dave Filoni is so good with like creating characters. And I I feel like he's gotten so much better because, you know, when you look 
you know, I don't, I'm not super familiar with what Dave Filoni was doing before st- the Clone Wars, but when you look back to like 2008 and the introduction that we got of Ahsoka Tano and, you know, the reception that the fans had of Ahsoka Tano at that time, and then look at like what Star Wars Rebels, you, it, it's really interesting to sort of see that progression of how, you know, if you go from 2008 to 2014 when Rebels premiered, how much his abil- his capabilities as a storyteller changed and evolved and improved in that time. So I think that's the biggest ingredient in terms of, like, what makes it great is you've got Dave Filoni running the show. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that now in The Mandalorian as well. Like, he's just, he's the key to success, I think, in a lot of ways at Lucasfilm and in Star Wars storytelling. But... I think I would say that and then I would kind of connect that to like really truly compelling characters is what really drew me in personally to Star Wars Rebels and I think what made it great for its entire run the entire time it was on. All right, Alice, anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, when you're saying what people don't like about it, I was just kind of starting to hide under my desk. Um, Rebels <laughs> was getting warmed up to it. It was a slow burn, I guess, for me personally. What I And then once Ahsoka hopped back in the picture, I was like, hell yes. But I I also like things that I think, like Laura said, they're definitely very Dave Filoni motivated and things that we hadn't gotten really in Star Wars before. You know, like a lot of involvement with animals that was really interesting. You know, yeah. we'd seen in Clone Wars Jedi, like, oh, hey, guys, you know, like, listen here. haha. But a lot of animals, a lot of weird force stuff getting Thrawn in there was awesome. We did have some really cool characters, but it was things from a different perspective and focusing on different topics that hadn't really been touched before. I think that's kind of where the the big draw of it is. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And I think all of that is stuff that we're going to get into kind of in the meat of the show. Um, I'll just throw some of my elements in, like some of the things that have really sort of appealed to me about the show and that I think it's done really well. I think first and foremost, I think this is particularly, I think particularly me and to some degree, a kind of function of your own kind of Star Wars consumption preferences. But a big thing for me about what makes Rebels great is that it's set in the original trilogy. Like I am very much an original trilogy person. Like that is my trilogy in a lot of ways. It was my gateway into Star Wars. So the fact that it is just in that time period for me, like kind of immediately resonated and clicked. Like I just have like a bottomless appetite for that. Like give me Star Destroyers, give me Stormtroopers, give me TIE Fighters. Like I will eat that all day, every day. So I, love I think that. that's how Alice is about the prequels, because Alice yeah. is definitely, I think, a bigger fan of the Clone Wars, wouldn't you say, Alice? A hundred percent, yes. <laughs> I mean, Clone Wars is good. I'm not, not going to knock that. But yeah, that, that was a big thing for me, is that it's set in the original trilogy. Rebels is also, as we all know, like a big theme in Star Wars is this notion of like found family. I think Rebels may be my favorite example of found family in Star Wars, even more than any of the like film trios. Like, I just love the fact that like each member of the crew of the ghost is in some way a kind of exile. So, you know, you've got Hera and Sabine who are kind of estranged from their families. You've got Ezra, who's an orphan on Lothal. You have Kanan, who is a Jedi kind of on the run being hunted by the Empire. You've got Zeb, who, at least for a long time, thinks he's the last of his species. And so you see, like, the ghost as this kind of place where all of these 
exiled people who don't really have a home or anyone else to go can kind of come together and then like form a new family. So I really, really like that. I think it, I, I think it does found family extremely, extremely well. I, I would agree with that sentiment. I, th- I think it does it. I, I think the found family component is probably better than it's certainly better than the sequel trilogy. Um, and yeah, I, I would definitely, I think, rate it, I think, above original trilogy in terms of like really pushing that found family storyline to the forefront yeah. um, and really emphasizing it and building it up over the course of the four, four to five years or so that it the story takes place over. Agreed. Another thing that I think the show does really well is that it, it ha- does a very good job at handling the scale of its storytelling. So what I mean by that is I'm thinking particularly about like, you know, we're, we're recording this a week away from the start of season two of The Mandalorian, which is hard to believe that we're almost here. And, you know, there's all been all these rumors floating about, about like recurring characters who may or may not be in the show. And we'll find out to what extent those rumors are true or not. But one of the kind of complaints or concerns that you've seen in the wake of a lot of those rumors is the fear that that the show is going to get stuffed with too many returning characters and it's going to kind of take away the focus from the main cast. And I think Rebels did a really good job of striking that balance between new and returning characters. Like there are so many cameos from like, whether it's the original trilogy or from the Clone Wars, there are cameos that like, there's so many, like some of them I forgot, like on one of my most recent like Rebels watches, I forgot that there was a Leia episode. Like there's just so many people kind of pop in and out of the show. But all the while through that, like the story remained fundamentally grounded and focused on the ghost crew, you know, so we got Ahsoka without Rebels really becoming an Ahsoka story. We got Darth Vader without it becoming a Darth Vader story. So I think it did that really well and sort of sets up a a good model in that way for, you know, future shows that want to bring in recurring characters. And I think it also does, like, in terms of scale, like, I think it did a good job of, like, on the one hand, kind of telling this intimate story, which is, like, the story of, you know, this particular crew and this particular rebel cell and what they're doing. And then also kind of connecting it to these bigger events that are happening in the galaxy and kind of seeing the repercussions of what they're doing for the kind of larger struggle between the Alliance and the Empire and their kind of place in it. And like, it was that kind of like bigger element, for instance, that was like one of my issues with Star Wars Resistance, which admittedly, I do need to rewatch at some point, but I felt like- Oh, you're brave for that one. (laughs) (laughs) I want to give it another shot. I really do. But I felt like it never quite struck that same balance. Like it always felt like a very small show. And like, I was kind of like, I was waiting for, and admittedly, it only had two seasons. But even so, I was kind of waiting for it to have that moment where it sort of like broke out of just this focus and kind of told us like, well, what are the kind of bigger implications and the bigger impacts? And it like never quite got there. Well, you mentioned that, you know, you talked about how they were sort of very, they they held back a lot when it came to bringing in characters that we know and love from the films into Star Wars Rebels and incorporating them to the story. They, they held back and they were very disciplined in their approach yes. to that. Yes. And Alice, I feel like you've talked about how the prequel or how the sequel trilogy like one of the weaknesses of it for you is that they should have done more of that Mm -hmm. i think that that's the fault was focusing too much and they're they were used as a crutch so we didn't get to know the new characters as much as we could have or should have really 
Yeah, whereas we had, like, so much more time, you know, just in, like, the episodic nature of Star Wars Rebels. But, you know, the show was so much more focused on them. And that's one of the things that I have have a little bit of apprehension about, like, season two of The Mandalorian with all these rumors that we're hearing of people that could be making an appearance. But, like, I feel like they were so disciplined with Star Wars Rebels and they were so disciplined with season one of The Mandalorian and not... Like, they made it a show for anybody to be able to watch. You didn't have to be a fan of the Clone Wars. You didn't even have to be a Star Wars fan. Like, hell, my sister didn't... She's not a Star Wars fan, and she loved The Mandalorian, but she was mostly just in it for Baby Yoda. Um, (laughs) But, you know, they they did a really good job of not making the story too hard to reach for people who are just more casual fans. So I, I think that that was a real strength. And so that's kind of what's giving me hope that like season two might be okay. And that maybe we're not going to necessarily see every single character that was rumored to be making an appearance. But yeah, that, it was one thing that I think Rebels did really well. They really kept the focus on, you know, this family of these six core members of the of the Ghost crew. Five, I guess, if you don't include Chopper. But I always include Chopper. So Oh yeah, I'm- Chopper's in there. So, yeah. And then I think the last thing, and this kind of touches on a little bit of what both of you said, particularly Alice, which is like the show just does so much lore building, which I love. Like even in that first season, which I think like relatively speaking of the four, I think is easily the weakest. Like it's still a good season, but just like in terms of you know what comes later, like there's so much that we get there in terms of like world building and lore. Like we get the Inquisitors, the, like the very first episode or maybe like the second part of that two-parter, we get that holocron from obi-wan we get the jedi temple on lothal and like and it was we go on to the later seasons like the show does so much to advance particularly our understanding of the force or even you can maybe even say like to, to show us like how little we actually understand it in terms of like the abilities that we see with ezra and then like something like the bendu and so on so it just does that world building really really well it kind of opens up star wars in really incredible and really really interesting ways yeah i definitely agree I, i'm like head over heels for anything that's in the realm of weird force shit yes so me too rebels did and like knocked it out of the park with that kind of stuff which i very much appreciate <laughs> Yeah, like that's one of my hopes, for example, for like the High Republic. I hope they just like, I hope it's like weird force shit to 11. Like, I just want like strange creatures and powers and like all of that. I really, really hope we get more of that. I think we will. I'm really optimistic about the High Republic and all those boxes everyone's been getting in the mail. Oh, I mean, yeah. they haven't gotten them, but like the, <laughs> like the writers and the fancy high up people. Oh, man, it looks so cool. Like that character that has the creepy, looks like a, gonna be a skeleton dog thingy and then there's like this weird evil bat creature that someone has that kind of the way i remember the way they described it it reminded me of um the bunny from monty python and the holy grail no <laughs> they're like it's just a bunny <laughs> and then it just you know devours everyone and murders them viciously <laughs> that's what the high republic's gonna be about i can't yeah. wait <laughs> yeah. bunnies. You're welcome. Spoilers. Sorry. (laughs) Alice just violated the embargo. Like she just gave it all away. They're going to be like, how did she find out? (laughs) I'm going to get a cease and desist letter for this episode. Right. You're welcome. (laughs) All right. So now that we've kind of done some of that stage setting, let's get into some of the like real meat and heart of the show. So I want to start off by looking at what I consider some of the touchstone seminal episodes of Rebels. So these are the episodes that I think 
had the kind of biggest impact in terms of the direction of the story. And then I think also had some of the bigger implications for wider Star Wars canon. And I've got five episodes here. After I sent you guys my outline, I subsequently discovered there really should be a sixth one, but we're going to talk about that sixth one at a later point. Like I put it in my show notes because I realized like a few hours later, I was like, oh crap, I missed one. But that's okay. <laughs> so the the five that we're going to be talking about in this section are Twilight of the Apprentice, Trials of the Darksaber, Twin Suns, Jedi Knight, and A World Between Worlds. So let's start with Twilight of the Apprentice. So the season two finale where Kanan, Ahsoka, and Ezra go to Malachor at Yoda's behest. So the first thing, before we actually like get into the particulars of this episode or episodes, this is technically a two-parter, there's something that like I was re-watching Rebels recently that like... And when I got to this part, it kind of left me a little bit of a head scratcher. It's kind of a more big, bigger picture thing about this arc. And I, and I wondered if you guys might be able to offer some insight. So what exactly was Yoda's endgame in sending them to Malachor? I don't totally understand what the plan was and whether things went to plan or they went awry. Like, I don't get that. Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> Because they have that line about like, oh, like you'll find out like the key to destroying the Sith, but then it's not clear like what exactly he's referring to. I would be willing to bet that it has something to do with balance. I, I don't know the answer to the question. I'm, I'm so I'm going to make an attempt to dance around it. Um, yeah. But that's what I would kind of think of that, you know, when it comes to like, you know, the force, there's like the spectrum there where there's the good and the bad. And then there's, there are places in the middle. And I, I kind of think that we have a tendency as fans to think of Yoda very much in the realm of like, just on the good side, like hardcore. And I wonder if maybe what he sort of discovered in his wisdom um, or in his solitude on Dagobah is that there has to be a balance. And so there has to be some, there might be something to gain from sending them to that place. There might be something to learn that could potentially come in handy in the overall big picture story. I don't know. Like I said, I, I could yeah, me be, neither. I could be totally wrong. Maybe one of you have, has a better idea than I do, but that's a, that was, that's my guess shot in the dark. Yeah. Lori, you mean coming big handy, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I hadn't, I haven't watched Rebels in a long, long time, full disclosure. But, I mean, if you think about it, I, mean, I think there could be a couple of reasons. And, Lori, you kind of were about to touch on this, I think. Um, but there's a lot of history there, right? With all of the kind of Jedi, former Jedi who had been turned to stone, which what if we see that in the higher public? That'd be fucking yeah. awesome from like the yeah. war. Totally. And then, you know, we had the old lightsabers, maybe something from a historical perspective. But then also it kind of seems like everyone goes through this, not everyone, but there are several instances where we see people go into like a dark zone. You know, Luke goes to down into the cave in the Kylo Ren comics, he goes into a cave type thing too. When Yoda was doing his like magical preparation stuff in the Clone Wars, he goes into like a dark zone too. So maybe it's something that he's kind of realized or somehow it's, it's kind of a trend of people going into like the dark cave areas. Right. It's like a trial they have to go through or something. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I definitely like when I was trying to think about this myself, I also don't have an answer for this. But I like I, f- I found myself starting to do like the thing that people sometimes do with Palpatine, where it's like, is Yoda playing like eight dimensional chess? Like he knows Maul is there and he's like sending Ezra to like meet with Maul and they hook up the holocrons. I started like trying to imagine if like Yoda like knew all of this. But yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, or if he knew something like, hey, eventually we have to like tie this to Obi-Wan. So let's maybe get them to get the holocrons together and then they can discover this Obi-Wan connection and we'll then we get, you know, the Twin Sons episode and I don't know. I it's a good question, but yeah. I um I never gave it much thought actually. So that that's pretty thought provoking. And Alice made a mention of this. I actually haven't rewatched an episode of Star Wars Rebels in ages. And I I likely won't because in, at least not for a while, just because the end is so completely and utterly devastating. I don't I'm yeah. not equipped to handle it at the moment, but I, uh, I, I would love to go back and maybe rewatch some of those early seasons that just to get that, just to kind of revisit that and be like, wait, what was this about actually? Yeah. It's something that just struck me on the most recent rewatch. When I got to this point, I was like, wait, like, what is he doing? Like, what's the plan here? I just had no idea. (laughs) So just for funsies. Yeah. So I think, uh, out of maybe any other like arc in Rebels or any other like episode or set of episodes, like I think Twilight of the Apprentice is one that is like most kind of impacted or like the way you look at it is changed by what we have gotten most recently in the Clone Wars with season seven, kind of getting that proper ending. Um, so I don't know, as, as you, both you mentioned you haven't watched Rebels in a while, but I wondered if like anything that we saw in that last season of Clone Wars changed in any way, like what you know happens in those series of episodes. Hmm. I don't think so for me, personally, because I remember being confused at Ahsoka's exit and meaning to look flip back through the Ahsoka novel uh, to confirm some things that I may have just made up in my head, but... and to me they're they're just very i keep them very separate for the most part yeah i think there was maybe some minor retconning going on with regards to the ahsoka novel and the the end of the clone wars but um i i remember being a little bit annoyed with the whole rex thing and you know (laughs) like he talks about in in some episode of of rebels about how you know we all have a choice and me and these people chose to have our inhibitor chips removed and it kind of implying like oh no we didn't participate in order 66 we had our wits about us during that time he didn't say it in so many words but that's the impression i think we were supposed to get and then clearly that wasn't the case by the time we came around to the uh, season seven of Clone Wars. So I, it's such a minor stupid thing. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. But I, at the time I was just like, what the hell? I think part of it is because I feel this like sense of like ownership over Star Wars Rebels. Like I love it that much. And I, it's like, because it's my Star Wars, I'm just like, well, don't throw a piece of my Star Wars under the bus for your storytelling, even though it ended up being a really good piece of storytelling. And, you know, it wasn't anything that I was really all that upset about as, you know, as I got farther away from it. But at the time I was like, "Eh, hey, (laughs) Laura, it's like you could read my show notes. I had this in later for the show notes, but I'll bring it up now about Rex. Like, what is Rex's deal? Like, who is he trying to kid in that episode? I even have that line that you're referencing. There's a moment where like Kanan and Ezra are kind of like talking amongst themselves. And Kanan is talking about like how he doesn't trust the clones because of Order 66 and so on. And then Rex jumps in. He's like, I didn't betray my Jedi. And it's like, 
that feels like you, you've got to like bust out the like Mori lie detector test on that one. You said I didn't betray my Jedi. The lie detector test determined that was a lie. I don't know who he's trying to kid. Yeah, homeboy might be in like full blown denial or <laughs> having a a senior moment or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like that just totally like doesn't fit anymore with with what we see in season seven. I mean, um, I, he did technically kind of have brain surgery, so yeah. There's that. Against his will. It <laughs> yes. wasn't his choice to have brain surgery and this whole thing. And Rui's like, we all have a choice. I'm like, well, you d- Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Just let it go. Let it go, Laura. It's fine. <laughs> you do you, bro. It doesn't you do you. matter. It does, but it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I remember hearing you guys bring this up on the show at some point. I had also been under the impression, like up until basically shattered that episode with Order 66, that Rex had his chip removed like sometime after the whole like fives kerfuffle. So yeah, I remember that would have been my guess, too. Yeah, so I remember watching that whole, like, Siege of Mandalore arc and thinking, like, okay, so, like, when Sidious rings him up and tells him to execute Order 66, like, what's going to happen? <laughs> and then we get to that, I'm like, oh, it's going to be, like, one of the most heartbreaking moments in Star Wars. Like, that's what we're getting. Yeah, yeah, that's what it gave us. And, you know, in, in a way that it was it was kind of worth it for that because it was such an emotional moment. And I really did appreciate it at the time. You know, it was it was heartbreaking. And but it also then led to this amazing action sequence in the show, too. So it it got us where we needed to be. And that was the objective. But yeah, it's one of those things that I wonder if it'll ever tie back around in some novel or they explain it away in some way. I don't know. Who knows? Nobody needs yeah. it. Nobody's asking for it except me, but it's fine, you know? <laughs> yeah, my guess is this is just like, this is, you know, Leia remembering her mom in Return of the Jedi. This is a good old-fashioned Star Wars, like, continuity error. Yeah, yeah. We we get a few of those every now and then, and that's that's fine, I guess. <laughs> you know, you'd <laughs> think that they would be like, we need to be better than this. We have plans now. We spent four billion dollars on this thing but then you know history tells us that that jokes on you yeah exactly (laughs) not star wars for your kids yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh goodness all right but um so returning to uh twilight of the apprentice where we had started so I remember like watching this because I I've watched, I rewatched Rebels twice this year. I rewatched it recently. I'd finish it up, and then I watched it immediately after Clone Wars season seven wrapped up because like that season, for you. yeah, because it wraps up in a good in, in a way that like puts really puts you in the mood for Rebels because like you got like the last shot is with Vader, and then the first shot of Rebels is with Vader. Yeah. And so I remember restarting it immediately after it wrapped up and like getting to Twilight of the Apprentice and like even like being in the mindset of like thinking about like season seven and so on and what does it change anything. I think I do like that what we see in season seven, particularly between Ahsoka and Maul, I think I think that adds certain layers in there because I was thinking particularly like there's a line in there that really makes me laugh every time it comes up, which is that when like all of them, like Kane and Ezra, Ahsoka and Maul are kind of grouping together to take on the Inquisitors. There's a part where like Maul says something like two Jedi and a part-timer. And I just like <laughs> laugh every time because it's just so like cutting. And it like totally fits with like what you see in like season seven, like when Ahsoka breaks Maul out and he's like, Oh, you've come to help me. And she's like, I'm not helping you. I'm like, go be a distraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good I times. love how 
I love how he calls her Lady Tano. I yeah, so <laughs> yeah. It feels so formal, but like also respectful, but also not. And I don't, I don't. It's weird. <laughs> Lady Tano, part timer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was actually another thing, like another moment that really stuck out to me, which is that. So there's a moment where like Ezra's going up to the temple to like hook up the holocron with it, and like. Ahsoka and Maul kind of briefly duel and then Ahsoka breaks off to go after Ezra and then Maul has this moment where he cries out to her like running away again Lady Tano and I remember watching that for the first time after season seven I was like shit like that was a punch when I heard him say that yeah I forgot about that that's what I yeah. get for not rewatching uh Rebels in a while but um yeah that that's that's cool now thinking about that how that connects back yeah, that line like really cut the first time I heard it, like post Clone Wars. Well done, season seven. Yeah, and then of course we get in this episode at the end, we, right? We capstone it with this duel between Vader and Ahsoka. That's very, very emotional. I talked a little bit about it in my top ten lightsaber duel episode. But do you guys have anything that you wanted to say about like that whole aspect of it, like the way that that arc kind of wraps up? Oh, it's just heartbreaking. And then you see Anakin's eye, but you can still tell it's him. We can still tell it's Clone Wars Anakin, and it's not all like, it's not too fucked up yet, from what I recall. But just that she knows, she knows it's him, but she's denying it's him, but she wants to help him, but she doesn't know how. And then you're just like, ugh. And then on top of that, you know, Kanan's blind. So it's a, she just sticks it in and twists it for you. It's such like a moment of anguish where she like mm-hmm. cuts the helmet, the part of the helmet open and can see his face. And she's just like, you're not my master. My master would never do anything so vile. And then telling him that she's not going to leave him. I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, how? just, you know, cut me in half, I guess. My, it's like so freaking painful to watch. Um, and I, I but I do love I remember hearing later, I think that they. In order to get Vader's voice, they mixed Matt Lanter yes. and James Earl Jones yes. together. And I'm just like, oh, my God, that's so freaking cool. Like, I love that they put him in there. They Matt don't Lanter. have to put that much effort into that. They could have just done James Earl Jones. It would have been fine. But the fact that they like made that effort to like really bring that mixture of people together so we could get that full effect was just like it's it adds such like a, an interesting layer to the whole thing. Just it, it was one of those things I think around that time. I don't think the Thrawn book was out yet because that would have been, I don't remember what year that was. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't think it was either. But it was like even that moment, like I didn't really, I hadn't really thought that much about like how Vader and Anakin are sort of both in there mm-hmm. and how Anakin's sort of still there in a way. And I just hadn't really reconciled that very much and spent a lot of time thinking about it and that was one of those first moments where I was just like, oh, my God, look at him. He's like right there. Yeah, definitely. It is. I love that they like that they brought Matt Lanter's voice and like I love the way that they kind of mix that in. And yeah, it's just incredibly heartbreaking, like because you get this moment where you sort of like feel like when Ahsoka's reaching out to him that like there might be just this like moment that he might turn or that he's at least contemplating it. But then he has that where he says like, then you will die and ignites the lightsaber. And it's just a moment like he's just shut that door. Like he's just totally, like he's, he's committed to Vader. Yeah, it's a, gr- it's a really great emotional episode. And it's one of those, you're right, I think that like it has, it has a bigger impact on the story as a whole, which made it really fun for viewers. 
it re- it was one of those that was like it was rewarding for people who are fans of the original trilogy. It was rewarding for people who are fans of the Clone Wars. Obviously, it was rewarding as a Star Wars Rebels fan. Like it just it had something. It gave something to everybody and sort of had all it hit all of those touchstones, which is great. Yeah. And then, of course, like how it kicks off with Vader coming in on his TIE fighter. I love that. Like, talk about an entrance. <laughs> it's so Vader, though. Like, it's so dramatic. Yes, he does have a flair for the dramatic. Mm-hmm. And of course, then there's all the other kind of elements of that episode, which is, you know, as I mentioned, like the return of Maul into Rebels, and then everything around like the temptation of Ezra and like Ezra kind of starting to flirt with the dark side. And that's something that's a kind of recurring theme all the way through like at least a good chunk of the third season until Twin Suns, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But yeah, so that's the first kind of touchstone episode. Moving on to the next one. So now we're going to be in season three. And this is Trials of the Darksaber. So our Sabine-centered episode. So I think one of the things that we see with Trials of the Darksaber is like, this is the first time I think in the show that we really see Sabine kind of open up. You know, she had been a relatively kind of closed character for, you know, the show up to that point. There's even that episode. I want to say it's probably in season two when we see, when we meet Ketsu, the woman that... Uh, Sabine had known from her bounty hunting days where like as was talking about how like Sabine is always like a loner and she's always by herself and so on. So we didn't really could have seen much beyond the kind of way that she sort of presented herself. But in this episode, we really look deeper into her and to her own past and history and her kind of, the kind of demons that she was struggling with. Yeah, you'll have to remind me with this um with this episode. Was this one where she like has a duel with Kanan towards yes. the end of it? Okay. Yeah. This isn't the one where she's actually back on like her home planet or whatever. No, that's the episode after. Went. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that um that was one of those things like I never I didn't watch the show for Sabine. I wasn't in this show for for Sabine and Ezra. They just were never my favorite characters. Mm-hmm. And so I just never really gave it much thought when it came to like oh, I guess we actually don't really know that much about Sabine. Like, I didn't know and I didn't care because I didn't dwell on it and just it didn't bother me at all. I was so preoccupied with the fact of like, why have I not gotten any Hera-centric episodes this entire show? <laughs> um, but that was that was one of those episodes I remember, like, I felt like it was a really big turning point with the music in the show. Like, I feel like that ep- it was like they really kicked up their game with that episode in particular. It was really awesome. And they kind of kept those themes going, but... Yeah, in terms of character development, it was definitely huge for Sabine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just also like seeing the dark saber get some more use, and I think that's part of the reason I'm super stoked for Mando to come back. Yeah, but it, it it was kind of cool because we never, I don't think we ever got a vibe that Sabine has any force sensitivity. Yet there she is, kind of learning to fight with. I believe the history, and I don't know if it's canon, the history of the dark saber, but it was a Jedi Mandalorian who built it according to something I read at some point, which I could have just made up in my head, but you know, having like a non force sensitive person wielding a kind of usually something associated with Jedi learning from Kanan and they're on, I don't remember what the planet is they're on anymore, but the Bindu planet, I believe the spiders and shit, those, I hate those things, but yeah, it was cool learning about her whole past. And I think even, you know, the few episodes following that when she does go back home and we find out you know just more about her background in general was really important because I hadn't really you know like Laura I hadn't really thought 
much about her at all. But then when we see that, you know, where she came from and how she was at the academy and how she went to go fix things, how she was raised, and then eventually kind of the strength that she has to have been able to turn away from everything. And then again, this is not Charles of the Dark Saber episode, but the kind of arc of Sabine having the strength to give up this unlimited unlimited power of the dark saber right having the strength to give that up at the end i think that shows a really well-rounded and mature character because there are lots of times in star wars where people just won't give up any kind of newfound strength that they have or newfound power or something but i mean prior to that yeah i didn't really think twice either yeah so i mean i think this is I've seen lots of people like talk about this episode, particularly on Twitter. Like I know um, McDowell has talked about this episode. Like she's a big Sabine fan. I think even saw somebody, maybe Alden Diaz like tweeted about it not too long ago about Trials of the Dark Saber in terms of like having this kind of like personal connection and like relating to Sabine's struggle in that episode. And for me, like one of the things about Star Wars is that like Star Wars is always at its best, at least for me, like when it gives us these kind of universal experiences and things that like we can all kind of relate to that's why like for example like if you ask me like what my favorite moment in star wars is in all of star wars i would say it's luke looking at the twin sons in a new hope because there there's something kind of universal about that and kind of transcendent and i think we kind of get that with sabine in trials of the dark saber where like she's given this big task and this responsibility to take on which is like mastering this weapon kind of on behalf of her people and to you know potentially lead her people and so on and you know she's struggling with kind of mastering the like lightsaber forms and so on and then like at one point she tries to find like a shortcut right because fen rao gives her those like mandalorian like anti-jedi weapons but then like she kind of loses that crutch and she kind of starts feeling discouraged and she starts like blaming Kanan, saying he's a bad teacher and she like wants to give up and you can tell that very much she's like weighed down by her past by the fact of her you know history with the empire and the fact that her people and her family kind of disowned her because of that and then it's not until she kind of comes to terms with and confronts that that she's able to actually succeed so i think in all of those ways there is something very kind of universal in that i think people everybody can relate to kind of different facets of that at different moments in their lives yeah, she definitely goes through like a trial, which is great. And it's 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 definitely great character development. It's sort of unfortunate that it took until season three. Yes. Like in yes. so late into season three, I feel like to really get, you know, that a little bit more, I don't know, essence or something from her as a character. But, you know, maybe there was more of it. And I just didn't notice it because I just didn't care. But I was just, yeah, I was so much more like, can we get more Kanan and Hera? No? Yes. Okay. I'll just go sit in the corner. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, there's the hipster doing art and dyeing your hair fun colors. Hey there. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, like, in, in terms of other things of that episode, like, I think one of the things that we see is that, like, Kanan's, like, a really tough teacher. Like, when she does try to use the tack that Fen Rao gives her, like, he, like, immediately, like, scolds her and he's, like, the Mandalorian's, like, lost the last war with the Jedi. So, like, this isn't going to save you. He's, like, really kind of a harsh teacher in that moment. And, but I think it also, you know, one of the things we also see is like, he is on the one hand, a kind of tough teacher, but also in some ways imperfect. I like the little moments that we get kind of in between the training montages where like Hera's kind of checking in with them 
and like seeing how's it going. And like, she's kind of like chiding him, like particularly about like him not trusting Sabine as much as he trusted Ezra, like during his training and so on. So you do see, so it's, you get these little side moments with these other characters, like someone with Kanan, where like Kanan is also having to learn how to be a teacher in addition to like Sabine learning how to be a good student. Yeah, it's great character development for Kanan because he's, he, you can tell he's sort of, He's come a long way in his teaching with yeah. Ezra over the course of like a season and a half. Because season one, he was still pretty resistant, I feel like, to to the whole process of having to take on a Padawan. But when it came, by the time it got to Sabine, like he was still a little bit insecure about his capabilities as a teacher. And then he's got, Sabine has got like a completely different style of just being a teenager than Ezra does, I think. And it, it was, you know, he had to adjust in a way and sort of approach it in a different way, which is more of a challenge for him. Yeah, Um, definitely insecure is a good word for it because, you know, he also couldn't see anymore. So it's kind of like he has something to prove, but he kind of can't. He's in a weird in-between state with this character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. And then as you both had sort of alluded to, like the episode that we get after Trials of the Dark Saber, uh, Legacy of Mandalore, pairs with it incredibly well. Like, as you guys mentioned, like, we get to learn so much about Mandalore and the Mandalorian people and some of the, like, politics, like, among the clans and so on during the Empire, where, like, we meet the Wrens. It, it used to be our first time that we met Ursa Wren. Now we technically meet her before that. And so, yeah, those are two, like, really powerful pairing of episodes and something that hit me on my most recent rewatch, like, when I got through them, and I was like, man, these are really good episodes. Who is it that she's fighting on that ice again? Is that Gar Saxon? Yes. Does she? I can't remember how that ends. Does she kill him, or does somebody no, else Ursa. kill him from afar? Okay. Ursa shoots him. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that was really epic, though. That was really cool how they, like, set that whole battle scene on the ice. And then there were so many different, like points of view like the layout of the entire episode was just so cool and so grand like yeah that was a fun one yeah it's a great one i've even seen like somebody on some on twitter speculating that like maybe the like ice planet that we see in mandalorian season two they've seen the trailer might be that same planet that we get in rebels i don't know to what extent that might be true or not but that might be a possibility if he's like hunting for other mandalorians and so on maybe that's a good thought i never thought of that um i think it's a moon isn't it i think it's it's chronist or something yes yeah i think it's a moon of mandalore yeah yeah that'd be wild i love that idea well we shall see not too long potentially but anyway a, a few episodes after this one i don't remember exactly how many but we get the episode twin sons that we've already kind of alluded to when we were talking about twilight of the apprentice but now we can talk about it a little bit more so this is another kind of important turning point episode another kind of great connection to the larger star wars canon and so on and of course gives us arguably the most memeable moment from the entire show rebels Kenobi. Kenobi! (laughs) Great moment. I love that little clip that's on YouTube where you see Sam Witwer, like, in the, like, recording studio, like, recording that scene. Yeah, that's a good one. I love it. Yeah, so... You know, what we see in Twin Sons is, you know, Ezra starts getting these like visions or like premonitions that Obi-Wan might be in danger and that like that Maul may be potentially after him. So he ends up 
sort of sneaking out kind of against the advice of Kane and Hera and everyone else. He kind of leaves the rebel base and he flies off to Tatooine to try and find Obi-Wan and to try to warn him of the threat. Little does he know that Maul is in fact manipulating him, right? He is using Ezra as this kind of bait to try and get Obi-Wan to lure him out because he thinks like, well, if if this boy is in danger, then Obi-Wan is going to kind of come and save him. And that's ultimately what does happen because you got, there's that scene where Ezra and Chopper are kind of like walking through the like desert and they're like slowly getting lost. And actually that was like, that is very much a kind of like heartbreaking moment in that episode. And like, you do really get a sense of their like desperation as like, he's getting like lost and like Chopper shuts down and everything. I love this this part of this episode with Chopper because yeah. it, in a way, it kind of shows that it portrays Chopper in a better light than it does C-3PO. Because when C-3PO and R2 are in the desert and the New Hope wandering around, they go their separate ways because C-3PO is too stubborn, too much of a stubborn <laughs> asshole to like listen to R2 and stay with him. And it shows that like, Chopper's better than that. Chopper doesn't abandon Ezra. He's got too much, like, he's too loyal to, you know, this kid that he has come to know over the last couple of years that he won't leave him, even though he wants to, he doesn't want to go the same way that Ezra does. So I love that. I love that moment just because we get that little tiny bit of, like, like, really showing Chopper's loyalty in his true colors, I think. Yeah, that's a great point. And then ultimately when once Ezra and Chopper are kind of rescued by Obi-Wan, they have this really interesting conversation. Obviously, like a lot of people for that episode, like focus in on like the mall Obi-Wan duo, which we'll talk about in a second, like some of the things that come up in there that I also want to like ask you guys about and pick your brains on. But the conversation between the two of them is like really, really interesting before the duel actually happens. Because you have this part where Obi-Wan tells Ezra like what you need, you already have. Unfortunately, you seem to be letting it all go and then you know Ezra is kind of like protesting because like Obi-Wan is basically telling him like well like you shouldn't have come here or like you were tricked and so on and then Ezra is like well like I saw you're in danger through the holocron and like the holocrons they don't lie like they always tell the truth and so on like he has this very kind of like simple view of things and Obi-Wan what he says here is like really really interesting he says the truth is often what we make of it you heard what you wanted to hear believed what you wanted to believe and now the only one who has gained anything from all of this is, and then like Maul chimes in at the moment and says, me. And when I was rewatching Rebels most recently and like we got to that point and I was hearing him like say all of that. And I started to think about like, to what extent like Obi-Wan is talking about, you know, Ezra and what he did with the holocrons coming to Tatooine. And like, how much is he talking about, for example, you know, the Jedi and the prequels and so on? Because like, you could take that whole line there and interpret it through the lens of like Qui-Gon and everyone else believing that Anakin was the chosen one. And like, they believed what they wanted to believe about this boy. And then he turned to the dark side and like, the only person who gained anything was Sidious. So I think it's a really interesting... Yeah, go ahead, Alice. Or even Anakin seeing Padme die, he doesn't actually see her die. I still am in a camp of Palps put those dreams into his head because he knew about the dreams. But, you know, even just knowing that Palpatine or that Anakin was manipulated and Yoda said constantly, just because you see something, I don't remember his exact phrase, but just because you see something doesn't mean it's true, essentially. So I think... He's he's kind of seen the result of that. You know, he watched Padme die and unnecessarily 
probably. So it, it definitely could be a lot of things, but most recently, probably the Anna Ken incident. <laughs> I was kind of thinking of like the sort of corruption of the Jedi as a whole in the prequel trilogy. Like, you know, they they didn't see what they needed to see in order yeah. to prevent a, a full-blown war from breaking out. And then they didn't see what they needed to see when they had ways to end it, or they did see it and they ignored it. So yeah, that's, it's a good point. It, it really it applies in a lot of situations in star Wars um, as it does. I'm sure a lot of the wisdom that we get from Obi-Wan. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So when I, when I watched that recently, I was very much thinking like about like Obi-Wan kind of drawing on his own sort of experience and what he went through when he's telling Ezra about like, the dangers of like believing these, you know, visions and things you hear and see and so on. And then of course we get that duel, which I, I mentioned this a little bit when I did my lightsaber duel episode. Like I think this like the duel was something that like I think when it first premiered, it was a little bit kind of like controversial in the sense that I think like a lot of people's impressions, and this was also my impression when I first watched Rebels, like it felt a little anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. Because you were expecting this kind of like big showdown. Like this was the thing that like had been building up all the way through Clone Wars. And like, you know, they'd faced off all these times and here it was. And that last like, I should have timed it at some point. I think it lasts like all of about 10 seconds, if that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I don't know if you guys had that reaction also, like the first time you watched the duel. I have that reaction every time, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm like, oh, damn it. Womp, because you know I love me some Obi Wan, even though I know it's not you, yes. McGregor Obi Wan, but I love my Bay, and I, yeah, underwhelmed. It's just kind of like, ugh. I mean, they're the immediate aftermath of it with their conversation is what like makes it, but the duel itself is just kind of a bummer. <laughs> I remember rewinding it and being like, is there some yes! video is broken? Yes! Where's the rest of it? Like, I was like, I definitely missed something. And going back and be like, where the hell is the rest of this duel? But at the same time, like, in retrospect, I really like it. I, I feel like I needed it at the time. I needed it explained to me in the Rebels Recon episode that came out right after it. Um, so I'm really grateful that they did those. But it, I, I, I really do like it because it's so different than what we're used to. We're so used to seeing these long, drown-out, epic different styles of fighting, different kinds of sabers, like people with different sabers. Like we've kind of seen it all. And this is something that we hadn't seen yet. We hadn't seen this very swift takedown of one's opponent. And, you know, in such an, like an epic story, this, like this, I don't want to call it a love story, but this love story between Obi-Wan and Maul (laughs) has stretched for so long at this point. You know, like almost what is it like 32, 33 years by the time we're we're in Rebels and it's it's just been this ongoing thing. And so to have it end this way, I really in retrospect, I really liked it when I go back and watch it and, you know, you kind of see how quickly it happened and how you break down the fight and you see the moves that Obi-Wan has learned and the things that he's observed from, you know, watching Maul, watching Qui-Gon and the lessons that he took away from it and was able to apply to this. And he took him down fast and easy just because he, he took the time to actually process and learn and Maul never did. Maul was always going to be Maul. He was yeah. always going to go for things the hard way. He wasn't ever going to learn and adapt and grow. It was always going to be a case for vengeance. So it were for revenge. So it was, it, it was interesting just because it was something we hadn't seen before, but I, I get why people were, when you think of Maul, you think of the Star Wars prequels when we finally started to get those really epic 
lightsaber fights. And so I, I get why people had different expectations. Well, I had different expectations going into it. That's why I thought my video was broken <laughs> when I, when I watched it, but yeah, it's, it's that it's got its merits, you know, it's just looking at it from a certain point of view, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it's really just those lines at the end that just kind of like, whoa. Tear you up. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is he, tell me, is he the chosen one? It's something along those lines that he says, but I mean, we see a lot of Maul knowing so much about the future and what's going to happen, even through the Clone Wars, when he first gets a semblance of sanity back, like, oh, has it started yet? Or, you know, he there are a lot of little things that he alludes to that he knows are coming or happening, whether it be from uh, Sidious having told him specifically or warned him about, or from Maul doing his Molly mall stuff that sounds like he's doing drugs which would be why (laughs) he would figure something out or have an idea about something but you know he 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 has a pretty impressive amount of foresight and i i feel like it's not all just from sidious you know mumbling shit at him or in his general direction, but you know, some of it is maybe from his, just his force ability, which also makes him all a little more compelling in my mind. But I, I, I just think kind of that very end before he dies and Obi-Wan's very compassionate. I think it's more of an infatuation than a love story, but just that he knows that there's, he knows there's something he's sensed there's something, maybe he saw it in a holocron who knows, but um just kind of that that very end, that last interaction between he and Obi-Wan is really special. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's where I wanted to go next. So that conversation that the two of them have after Obi-Wan delivers the kill blow. I mean, the first thing to mention is like, it is sort of incredible that like, even in those like, in those like few seconds, like that the show manages to give Maul a redemption arc, essentially, in like so many words, it does kind of redeem him in certain ways. But like that whole exchange that they have about the chosen one is like really, really interesting. So like, you know, Maul is kind of dying in Obi-Wan's arms and he's like, tell me, is it the chosen one? And he's sort of referring to like, before they started dueling, he mentioned the fact that like, Maul being like, oh, like, why would you come on this planet? Like, what are you doing? And he was like, ah, like you're protecting someone. And like that sort of, that's the kind of instigator for them to duel. And then Maul asks him like, you know, is it the chosen one? Referring like, is that who he's protecting? And then Obi-Wan says, yes. And then Maul says, you know, he will avenge us. And then he passes away. So I'm just curious, like, I wanted to get from you guys, like, much like the, like, what's the deal with, you know, Yoda and Malachor and so on. Like, what what's going on with that conversation about, like, Obi-Wan thinking Luke is the chosen one? What, what do you guys make of that? Well, I took most of my lessons with Rebels from Rebels Recon. And I think one of the things that they talked about with this was the... Obi-Wan had to believe that Luke was the chosen one because he used to believe that Anakin was the chosen one. And then he was so let down in just the absolute worst way. And then basically gives up his entire life, his entire existence to watch over this kid. He has to talk himself into doing that somehow, you know, like there has to be some other motivation, I think, beyond oh, this is Anakin's kid. Like it has to be, oh, Mm. this kid has a bigger purpose so I have to protect him so that he can serve that purpose. Yeah, it's just, it's really, I mean, and part of it was like, and I was sort of like thinking in that direction too, but then also that like, 
Luke doesn't even like fit the prophecy of the chosen one because that all mentions like, you know, someone born of no father, like from the force. And it's like, Luke has a biological father. Like, why would Obi-Wan think he's the chosen one? He doesn't even fit. But in any case, like, like, I I think it's a good example of like, I think I may have mentioned this in earlier episodes, which is that like Star Wars kind of likes to play fast and loose with the chosen one. Like, it's this concept that on the one hand is like really important, like particularly in the prequels. But like they, they like to like flirt with, you know, like what it actually is. So it's like it's almost in the situation where Star Wars is like Anakin is the chosen one. But what if he's not, you know, like it, they, they do that a couple times, like whether it's like this scene or like even in I'm thinking something like Rise of Skywalker, when they get that scene with all the Jedi from the past talking to Ray and you get that line from Anakin who's like, bring back the balance, Ray, as I did. And like there is a little bit like flirtation about like, oh, like, what does that mean? So, yeah, it's this kind of like it's on the one hand, this like really kind of central concept but then it's also like loosey-goosey at moments yeah i think a lot of times it's like i I think it's just kind of depends on the character and what their point of view is and i hate to keep coming back to that because it's just you know it's so tip it's such a a non-answer in star wars but that's that's i mean that the answer sort of makes sense to me it's like Obi-Wan didn't know the prophecy, you know, he didn't, he, I don't know mm. if he ever heard it that, you know, this prophecy, the, the chosen one being born of no father and blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know if he ever heard that. So he doesn't have that, that extra bit of insight. This is just going off of, you know, what he's seen and what he's learned and observed and, you know, what wisdom he's gained on his own. Yeah. I mean, it also could be a few things. I mean, I don't, I wish I remembered all the prophecies from Master and Apprentice, but I mean, there could be ways that you kind of massage it, right? Like, yeah. Luke technically has no father because his father was Anakin, oh, yeah, who no longer yeah. exists. And oh, that's a good point. Vader slash Anakin technically does bring balance to the Force through his sacrifice at the end. So Luke has something to do with that. And Luke is Force sensitive. And at the time, there aren't other people who are recognized as force sensitive in the galaxy by another Jedi that we really knew of. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I know there's Cal Kestis and fallen order, but there aren't people who are for the most part recognized and trained, but they know that, or they feel that he has kind of something special and maybe can come somehow contribute. And maybe what Maul really saw And Obi-Wan, if he had been communicating with Qui-Gon or Yoda, who knows? I don't want to get too much into the Kenobi book, which I love, and I hope they make that into this TV show. But um, we just don't know. Being the chosen one is one thing, but there could have been other prophecies or other ways of looking at it, I guess. Yeah, and I actually like your like the, the way that you sort of like interpret it, like about how the chosen one prophecy could potentially be about Luke, or like how like somebody like Obi Wan could see it in that way. If we assume that like he knew the like actual text of the prophecy, which is a good point. I don't know if he actually knows the full text. Maybe I read Master and Apprentice relatively recently, but I don't remember if I know the pro- the full text of the prophecy is in there, but I don't remember if like Obi Wan is seen like reading it or hearing it. Yeah, I mean, even Yoda says in the prequels, doesn't he say like prophecies? misread maybe yeah yeah but yeah so that's that's pretty much twin sun so it's a it's a nice little sort of like wrap up to the story of you know 
Obi-Wan and Maul, as, as Laura mentioned, the story that's been going on for literally decades within the Star Wars universe. And it's also this important moment for like Ezra, where he sort of realizes that like the ghost crew is his family and like he has a certain amount of like responsibility from them and he sort of learns that like he shouldn't keep running away and so on. He has to stay there and, and be committed to them. So now bringing us to the fourth kind of seminal episode, an emotional soft spot for us all, no doubt. And that is from season four. That is Jedi Knight. Yeah, we got to talk about it. Got to talk about Jedi Knight. All right. First things first to say about Jedi Knight, because I want to make sure that we plant this flag in here before we go any further. Kanan's haircut is stupid. (laughs) Let's just establish that. It's really dumb. Okay, dude, you've seen all of the quarantine haircuts. Like, <laughs> oh boy, was blind. He was blind. Yeah. People who could see are giving themselves bad haircuts. <laughs> yeah, on purpose. That is very fair. <laughs> he had the quarantine cut. <laughs> yeah, on purpose. He only had so many options there. And also, he used a knife. I just cut my hair by myself and. I cut several inches off, actually, which no one can really tell because my hair is so long anyway. But I made sure to order on Amazon official barber shears because I thought that would somehow just magically make it better. And Homeboy used a knife. So, yeah. (laughs) I didn't mind it because I really enjoyed the weird music that was playing while that whole scene was going (laughs) on. Yes, yes. And I love that he, like, left the ponytail behind like a fucking weirdo. I was just like, this is just so freaking funny. And I, it was just, it felt very epic. It felt very, it felt, like, ominous. I was like, oh, my God, something's going to happen. This is get, This is where it's happening. Even, I knew the title of the episode. I should have known, but I still was trying to talk myself out of it. I was like, nope, this is it. Okay, yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask you guys next. So, like, did you see it coming, thinking that, like, Kanan might very well die, at least by the end of the episode? I think yeah. we all knew it was coming just yeah. from the title. And then also the was maybe it's just me. Was the music not released before the episode as well? So that it sounded. There was, I think something. it was like some of the tracks leaked ahead of time. And it was like one of them was called like Kanan's end credits or something. And so oh, everybody yeah, yeah. was just like, no. <laughs> and I tried not to look, but I looked and then I hated myself. <laughs> yeah. Laura and I watched, I think we watched the entire final season together or most, most of, of it. it, if not all yeah. of it. Yeah. 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 But I think I can't remember from like the first time of watching Rebels, whether I saw it coming or not, but I think that, you know, the episode I think really executes that turn to like Kanan's sacrifice and death really well, because you've got, you know, like the whole premise of the episode is, you know, Hera has been captured by the Imperial. She's being like tortured and interrogated by Governor Price and Thrawn. And so Sabine, Ezra, and Kanan kind of execute this rescue operation to going into the capital city to bust her out. And so like they bust her out, like you get you get some lighthearted moments where like Hera is kind of like loopy on like whatever, like interrogation, like drugs, the little like floating ball droid like injects her with. So she's all kind of like loopy and so on. And like he steals the Calicori back for her and so on. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. We got to talk about it. But it hurts, though. <laughs> it does. And then, you, and then you get the moment at the like fuel depot where like <sighs> they're like they're waiting for the for like Sabine and Ezra with the with the like shuttle transport thing, and like they finally say like I love you to each other and so on. And then you have the attack on the fuel depot by Price. 
Why is your girl on a Friday night to make, I mean, your girl, your goal on a Friday night to make two girls cry? I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It is very. I hate this. I'm leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then we get, of course, the way that it ends. And I think like one of the things about that when I was watching it recently, thinking about like the music and the visuals in this part are like are absolutely on point. Like, you know, Alice just brought up the music. I know like this is this is a common source spot for you and me, Laura, both, which is that they never released the soundtracks for Rebel season three and four. I remember even thinking about you recently earlier this month because like squadrons, of course, dropped at the beginning of this month. And then I saw like a couple days afterwards, like some people posting on Twitter that they were listening listening to the soundtrack for squadrons and i was like there's a soundtrack for squadrons <laughs> right i have to tweet about this every now and then even though i'm sure that like at this point disney music has to have me muted but that's <laughs> like i saw that at one like at one point somebody was like if you want a rebel soundtrack you have to tweet at disney music and tell them and i was like i've been doing it for years and i don't have i can't keep doing it because i just sound like a broken record at this point but yeah, it's it's freaking like it's awful like it's not fair at all that we don't have a comprehensive score of that. You can still find the music on like the Kiner Brothers website. You can still find some of the tracks, but it's just, I just, I just want more. I want all of it. I want all of the soundtrack for seasons three and four because the music was so good. It's like it was good. It was good in one and two, but it was really, yeah. really good in three and four. Yeah, it's so good. But yeah, particularly in that with the kind of like Gregorian chants and like the drumming and so on. And then even with the visuals where you get like the kind of closing title card, but like instead of like the traditional one, it's like white and this is this kind of like black debris. Yeah, My heart's breaking. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) They just do a really good job in that episode with just giving you those cues to telling you like, this is important. This is a kind of turning point and so on. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think what we, you know, what we see in that episode with Kanan's kind of self-sacrifice is like in terms of his arc as a character, it's very much him kind of coming full circle and very much kind of walking in the footsteps of his master. Because as we learn, you know, in season one, his master, Depa Balaba, sacrificed herself during Order 66 so that he could escape. And so he's sort of doing the same. And I like that, you know, much like with Trials of the Darksaber, I think this episode is also really paired well, because you get after this, you get Doom, and you sort of see them playing that into, again, when, like, Ezra has that vision with the Lothwolves, and he meets the Lothwolf Doom, and, like, Doom tells him, like, you ran. And so that's almost like putting Ezra in the position of that young Kanan, or I guess Caleb Doom, he, he still was at the time, like, you know, his master's in trouble, and he ran away. And so Ezra's kind of dealing with that guilt the same way that Kanan dealt with that guilt, too. Yeah, I love how you you use the terminology of bringing it back around. It's... I didn't think about that, about how, you know, Depo really did save him during Order 66. And in a way, he's kind of been living on borrowed time ever since then. Oh, that's a good point. It's really, you know, and it's so sad because there's, there clearly could have been, there was so much more story to tell, I feel like. Like, we Mm -hmm. still, we had that moment in the cave where there's like all or a couple moments in the cave and on Lothal where there are like the weird markings on the wall. Yeah. And I, I still don't know how I'm supposed to interpret those. I don't know if there's a correct answer that I just didn't get because I'm too dense or if they, if we're just supposed to interpret it our own way or if they're just purposely leaving it unexplained. But I really wish that they would have actually dug into like, what are these symbols? What do they mean? And how are they going to play into the bigger story? 
But instead, I think it was just supposed to, I don't know what it was supposed to be. I'm like, was it, were we supposed to interpret like them being somehow related to Canaan? Was Canaan born on Lothal? And that's where his people were. And so there's some sort of connection there spiritually with the wolves. I don't know. Like, I, I wish that somebody would have spelled it out for me because I'm too dumb to come up with my own explanation. <laughs> and I don't want to have to come up with my own explanation because I'm also lazy. So I just need someone to explain it to me. But I, you know, at the same time, it's like we we got more of Kanan than any than we were ever supposed to get of any surviving Jedi you know, from Order 66. No one was supposed to survive. We weren't supposed to get this story. You know, he defied all odds, just the way that Ahsoka defied all odds to get to this point. And, you know, he left a legacy when it comes to, you know, the things that he taught Sabine and Ezra. And, you know, who knows where Ezra ended up? I know that it's sort of a safe assumption that that he survived, I think, and that we'll see hopefully a story from him someday where we see him actually mentoring younger force users and we can maybe see a little bit of like oh yeah that where kanan's teachings eventually got him yeah yeah, that's a good point and yeah definitely holding out that hope for for some sort of rebels follow-up at some point i really really hope disney comes through on that i mean there's been that rumor for how long now like a year and a half at least right yeah, yeah, about the like Rebel sequel. Yeah, that sort of turned into like waiting for Godot at this point. I mean, we'll see if <laughs> anything kind of comes of that. Yeah, I think I it's it's got to be in the wings, right? Yeah, I feel optimistic that we'll we'll get something, and I would love to have. Again, it's another opportunity for Ahsoka, and I think that's going to be the big from a marketing perspective. Ahsoka after her first what like two seasons in the Clone Wars movie is very very likable and lovable has yeah. a character. So they pop her a Mandalorian. It brings people to the Clone Wars. They have her in Rebels, Clone Wars, Rebels 2, Clone Wars, Clone Wars, prequels, prequels OT. I think she's a big connecting point from just marketing wise to bring more people onto the Star Wars bandwagon and that therefore more money, which might be a little uh, not negative. I don't know the word I'm looking for, but no, I think you're right though. I think you make yeah. a good point. Like she's a good one to like, she's a good like catalyst to bring people in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And therefore more money and Disney wants to make money. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the last kind of touchstone episode that I want to talk a little bit about, um, and then we'll tr- transition talking a little bit about like the best episodes for each character and so on is the episode that comes maybe, I think it's two episodes after Jedi night, two or three. And that is a world between worlds. Now, I, the world between worlds is something that I struggle with a little bit as a kind of thing that exists in Star Wars. And here's why. Because I feel like there are two world between worlds. I feel like there is the one that we get in the episode that, at least from my vantage point, is very clearly defined in terms of like what it is and what it isn't. And then there is the one that dwells in the fever dreams of certain fans. <laughs> where, where it... <laughs> Where it is this kind of like deus ex machina to like fix all these issues that you have, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like the way it was used in Rebels and so on in this episode. And we'll talk about a little bit about how it's used and so on. But it's kind of gotten this like life of its own now, post-Rebels. I know exactly which fans you're talking about. And that's <laughs> freaking hilarious to me. Um, yeah, I. the thing is, is that like on on its surface, like... The World Between Worlds introduced time travel into Star Wars and introduced that capability. 
into Star Wars. So I don't know if fans are necessarily interpreting what they saw, but they're interpreting like what, how the tool could be used, mm-hmm. not necessarily how it was used in this episode, because clearly Ezra made the right decision. He didn't interfere with a particular moment in rebels that could have fixed temporarily what he was going through, but obviously, or that probably wouldn't have been a good thing in the long run, but it, he did alter time in like the I, I don't want I hate to use like the word like the time continuum like to take a word from back to the future but like he did alter it in some way by pulling Ahsoka out of that situation on on Malachor through this portal so you know it's not necessarily like I don't know if I think fans are anybody's still interpreting the right way it's it's something that I think you can interpret it any way you want you can now you've you've opened the possibility of a time machine in star wars where you can actually go fix things um or change things that have happened i think that's a very feasible and that's very that that is very much the thing that they could bring back at some point and i think that's why fans a lot of fans were mad at the time they're like we don't want to be giving people the ability to go retcon things right you know storytellers to go retcon things that they maybe didn't like you know, the canon should remain a canon. And I, and I understand that our interpretation, but, you know, I can also understand how they would want to give themselves, like storytellers at Lucasfilm would want to give themselves an out or in the capability to go change things if they wanted to. Yeah, when I first saw it, I remember feeling confused. I'm not a super deep thinker for the most part. I think, Laura, sometimes you disagree with me when I say that, but... I just didn't really get it. I didn't think very deeply about it. I thought, huh, that's interesting. Like, yay, Mirai, haha. Um, but I, I kind of didn't, I just didn't really think much more about it after the episode, to be honest. I mean, it's interesting. It's something cool and new to see, which is always great in Star Wars. But I wasn't hyper-focused on it and what it could imply for the rest of everything else. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, Lauren, you brought up the you brought up the operative phrase that I was going to, like, talk about next, which is this notion of, like, time travel. And I think this is actually something that, like, is, like, a, at least among some fans, at least that I've seen, like, on Twitter in particular, like, a point of debate about, like, can you describe what happens in the world between worlds as time travel? Because I know, like, there's some people say yes, and there's some people say no, and so on. The place that I've landed on this, and I guess you could even call this a kind of like splitting the baby answer, is that it is time travel, at least is like how I'm interpreting it, that it's time travel, but it's sort of like Terminator time travel. So like Kyle Reese goes back in time to save Sarah Connor. In so doing, he hooks up with her. She gives birth to John Connor, who then grows up to lead the resistance and then sends his father back in time to save his mother. Or even like Harry Potter time travel, like in The Prisoner of Azkaban, where like Harry and Sirius are about to be killed by the Dementors on the lake. Harry sees someone conjure Patronus, thinks it's his dad. He does time travel. He gets back to that point thinking he's going to see his dad. No one is coming. Then he realizes he's the one who has to conjure the Patronus and he knows he can do it because he saw himself do it. So I'm imagining it mm. world between worlds working in that way where it's a kind of like closed loop. So like on the one hand, you have Ezra grabbing Ahsoka out of out of the Vader duel in Malachor. But then you have, you know, a little bit later on, he has that moment where he passes the portal where he sees, you know, Kanan just about just before he's about to die. And he, like he wants to go and save him. And like part of that is, 
you know, about as Ahsoka mentions, like part of it is about imparting a lesson onto Ezra where it's like he has to learn to let go of his master the same way she had to learn to let go of Anakin. But I think it's also it's potentially like you, you could read it this way. I mean, maybe I'm totally wrong about reading it this way. You couldn't interpret it as like Filoni and company trying to say like the world between worlds doesn't quote unquote change the past in like a kind of let's say back to the future time travel way. That like maybe Ezra going into save Ahsoka was just baked into the timeline the entire time, the same way that like Kyle Reese and Terminator was baked into the timeline. Hmm. I mean that that really I think gives you the option of like I don't know if it's what exactly the right word is, but basically that gives you the like concept of destiny. It's like everything yeah. is predetermined and there's no way that you can alter or control any of it because it's all going to happen the way it's going to happen. But I love the way that you, I love how you brought Harry Potter into it because it reminds me, I think there actually is like a sort of, there's a very close comparison there where I think Dumbledore either in the book or in the movie tells Harry like, if you go back, perhaps an innocent soul can be saved. Yeah. And that's essentially oh, what the wolf tells, d- tells Ezra. Wow. Where if you go back, if you can figure out how to get into this, wow. you, there is a there is something that you can change. There is an important life that you can save. And I think Ezra interprets it as, oh, I can save Cain in this way. Oh, my God. Um, but I, I love that comparison. But yeah, it's it's definitely, it's one of those things where it's like you can't necessarily control where you end up in the world between worlds, you know, like it doesn't, you can't control it. It's more like it controls you and it's, you know, there's something that's destined to happen and that's where you go to, in order to accomplish it. It's not something you can specifically seek out, I think, to just accomplish whatever willy nilly task you want. Yeah. Lord, I really like blew that. My mind. Sorry. Alice, <laughs> but oh my God. I never thought about that comparison with the wolf and Dumbledore. Wow. Yeah. You the can wolf compare- is Dumbledore. Yeah. yeah, you can compare everything to Harry Potter if you try. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We often compare Harry Potter related things to Star Wars, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Alice. I cut you off. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I was just saying I like that train of thought that it's predetermined anyway, and it's kind of a set loop instead of a like an open ended story. I mean, in some ways, like, this is, like, I mean, not to, like, dwell too much on the world between worlds, otherwise we'll, like, we'll be here for, like, five hours. But, like, I, I do wonder, like, to what extent that is an implication of the world between worlds. Because, like, when Ezra first walks in, you know, he's, like, walking around and he's hearing all of these, like, voices and so on. And you can hear, like, future moments. Like, at one point, I think you hear, you know, the Leia hologram from A New Hope. At one point, you hear Jyn Erso from Rogue One. At another point, I think you hear uh, Maz Kanata talking to Rey. And so I think there is like, there is a question of like, when you see something like that in World Between Worlds, you wonder like, is this all just like baked in? Is all of this been sort of like predetermined to happen exactly as we see it? That's really funny. I, I didn't actually think about that. And I feel like that is exactly what they're saying. They're like, there <laughs> yeah, is, <it's> really like <laughs> you no have choice. no control over this story. It's this is how the story happened. And this is how it's going to play out. And there you go. <laughs> Take it or leave it. But yeah, so, and then I think the, the final thing I wanted to say about World Between Worlds, I guess two things, and this is not about the episode, but about before, like, I do love the use of, like, the mural from, like, the three figures of Mortis. I think that's a great little, like, tie into the Clone Wars and bringing some of that lore in. Beautiful. 
Yeah, it's really, really nice. I really, really like that like nod to Clone Wars there. And then the last thing to say about that episode is that last shot that we get in A World Between Worlds where they're like at the grounds of the Jedi Temple, but everything's gone. It's all like smooth and flat. And then there's like the fog and everything. And then you see like the loath wolf in the distance. Like that is one of the great shots in Star Wars. It's absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah, agreed. I love it. It's beautifully lit. It's be- It's just a, you know... It- sort of beautifully acted where you've got Sabine or you've got Hera and Ezra, just the two of them in that scene, watching him, watching it leave. It's just, yeah, I love it. All right. So those are, so those we talked about some of the kind of touchstone major episodes to kind of talk a little bit about just uh, about some of the like best episodes or like best single episodes for each of the characters, or at least sort of our main ghost crew and so on. So I think we already alluded to this a little bit when we were talking about the main episodes, but I want to hear from both of you. So what are your favorite, like, what's your favorite character from the show for each of you? <laughs> One of my standout characters, and I don't know if that's my favorite. I I enjoy Rebels. I think it's great for what it is. I like what we get out of it, but it's not my favorite. One of my favorite characters in Rebels is AP5. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for sure you were going to say Puffer Pig. <laughs> oh, no. That is no. an excellent answer. I like that answer. Yeah, AP5 is far superior to Puffer Pig, but just how <laughs> he gets along with Chopper and he's just really blunt, like, yeah, okay, this isn't right. Fuck this shit. Goodbye. Let me just float in space in peace, please. God damn it. No, he's one of my favorite, but I think – one of my surprise favorite characters because I can't I can't single out episodes. It's been mm-hmm. way too long since I've watched it. But I think a character that does have really good development, and I know this is outside of the Ghost Crew, but um, Callus, yeah, yes. he he ends up very very compelling, and especially the episode where he and Zeb are stuck together. The honorable ones. I have that in my list because I was trying to come up with a favorite episode for Zeb and I just Mm -hmm. don't give a shit about Zeb. So I was just (laughs) like, well, it's a good one for Callus, so I'll go with that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think they're really great. I think that's, um, I think those are one of the great episodes. I think my favorite of Rebels is still Twilight of the Apprentice Mm -hmm. just because I get my prequel shit in. Right. But um, I, I think they're, I think Rebels might not be everyone's taste. I think it does have its benefits, and I think it starts off a little slow. Clone Wars start off a little slow, too. Yep. You know, people don't want to remember that, but it did. And, it, you know, it finishes off much more strong. But, yeah, I think that. And then just other than that, getting to know the Ghost Crew, getting to know Theron. Laura, this is kind of pivoting before we go to you, but how do you feel about recommending the book a new dawn prior to or while watching rebels i think it's yeah i was thinking about that too because i was like that is kind of the low-hanging fruit of like do i want to recommend that book of while we're talking about rebels and like i think i would i think that i would preface it to people that this is a it's a canaan book this is a story about Kanan. This is not a story about Kanan and Hera. Hera is like very much like a side character kind of in the book. And we're not really getting a lot from her point of view. So yeah, I would recommend it, but just don't go into it with expectations that it's going to be this like beautiful love story of how Kanan and Hera met. It's not that at all. <laughs> it's it's so funny how you brought up that organically. I just started reading A New Dawn like two nights ago. Oh, sorry if I just yeah. spoiled no, it. No, 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 no. No, you didn't spoil anything. No, no, no. I'm only a couple chapters in, but no, that doesn't really spoil anything. 
Yeah, no, that it's it's more of setting expectations because that when I when I went into it, I had a very different expectation of what the book was going to be. Um, and I've I've gone back and reread it a couple of times because I love that book, and it's our first introduction to Ray Sloan, who's a fantastic character. And it's you know overall, I think it's a really really strong novel. I know that it's not a lot of people's favorites because it's like the first canon book, and so many people that are into Star Wars reading were so like hard up for legends and i'm just like i just don't give a fuck about legends and so like when this was something different i think people were just like man it's not as good as legends and it's like oh okay so just because chewbacca doesn't get hit by a moon it's not as good okay that's fine that's fine i guess uh (laughs) but yeah i enjoy new dawn a lot i that's why i've gone back and revisited it because it's a good book yeah and i feel like part of it and i could just not be remembering this right because when i a New Dawn, I listened to his audiobook when I was unemployed last time and walking dogs for <laughs> wag. Um, but I want to say there are elements in it when it comes to the big bad that are also referenced again in one of the solo, like Journey to Solo books and Most Wanted. Have you read that one, Devor? I have not yet. No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think it relates itself to most wanted, but I, I wasn't quite sure, but it did. Um, there were, there were pieces in it when it came to the big bad that were reminiscent of things that we dealt with on Corellia and most wanted. I could have totally misinterpreted anything. I'm not good at audiobooks, but yeah, just gonna put that out there. Right on. Good to know. I haven't read that one either. Actually. It's not super awesome. <laughs> not recommended by Alex. no i remember you saying that that's why i put it down like i own uh, it and i was reading it and then i was just like nah she didn't like it so i probably won't like it <laughs> but that that also was one that i'd done an audiobook and i'm just really not good at audiobooks so gotcha that could be why <laughs> um so laura what would you say is your favorite character out of rebels um, Harrison Dula is definitely my okay. favorite character. I mean, I, I've talked about this a lot. She's my favorite character in like all of Star Wars. Like, I oh, just okay. love her. I also love Kanan. Like, I every depending on like kind of where I am and what mood I'm in, sometimes it fluctuates between like Kanan and Harris, do who my favorite is. But yeah, Hera's hard because she just doesn't get a lot of play in terms of like yeah. actual like episode focus. Like we get so she's so much more on the sidelines yeah. um, of this story. And like she never really gets to be the center character with the exception of like, I think I can count on one hand how many episodes are like really about her over the course of four seasons, which in a way, like I get it was Ezra's show. It was always supposed to be like a story of Ezra, who's basically like a different version of Luke. Like it's supposed to be that character's story that we see. It's not supposed to be about Hera, but at the same time, I would really like it to be about Hera. I would like to get (laughs) some more content about her and how she grew up and what happened to her mom. And what was it like growing up amid like the free Ryloth movement? And you know, what exactly was the downfall between, between her and Cham that led her to leave Ryloth and join up with the rebellion or whatever the early version of the rebellion was um, and how she got involved in that. Like, these are all stories I would really like to know. And then also, you know, what happened exactly with her after Rebels ended through Endor and then how she, you know, we meet up with her again after Endor in Alphabet Squadron, and she's still pretty much a nothing character, mm. even in Alphabet Squadron. So yeah. I'm just like, I'm constantly just disappointed <laughs> as someone who's who's a big fan of that character. And I would just like to not be disappointed for once. I would like to get something. And my my perfect 
world, I would get a Hera centric book that would just follow her basically, or I that would just give me her life story. Maybe not necessarily her like follow her from the time that she's like a teenager to when she's post uh, empire fall. But I, I don't know. I would just like something so that I can get a little bit more of that character because I really do love her. I just wish that she wasn't so much on the sidelines all the time. Agreed. Yeah. I would love some sort of Hera centric content. That would be great. Yeah. I think she would just be a fun one to sort of get her point of view of like what's going on in the galaxy and at any of these given times. So that's where I'm at. But yeah, like Homecoming is an episode where she and, you know, her father and the ghost crew, like this, they mm-hmm. steal an Imperial character and it's a good Hera episode. But yeah, between that and like maybe one or two others, that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she doesn't get a lot. And when I was thinking about this list also, I was trying to think of like, like best Hera episode. I was also struggling to there. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, my favorite character, I am a big Sabine person. I actually am. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really, really love Sabine. Like I like her sort of creator side. I like that she's kind of quirky. I sort of feel like if I were on the ghost, like she's the one I would most likely be friends with. So, yeah, so I sort of like connect to her sort of character and personality and her sort of more kind of like loner tendencies in that way. So, yeah, she is she's got she's very near and dear to my heart. Can I ask if you were ever like, did you ever ship her with Ezra? No, not really. And that's something I had in my show notes to bring up. Like there, there was that whole thing in season one where they were like toying with it, where like Ezra was kind of like flirting with her or coming on to her. There's that episode where Lando shows up where like Sabine and Lando are kind of like talking about art and so on. And like Ezra's getting jealous, even though she's like, what, 17 and Lando is in his like late 30s, early 40s, I think by that point. Like, right. he's not really coming on to her, but and then they just kind of drop that. That just goes nowhere. Yeah, I, I was never I never really got really the appeal of that i mean like people to each their own you know people are gonna ship different characters that's what fandom that's a big part of what fandom is i think for a lot of people and it's fun and people write fan fiction and that can be fun too but i'm just like i i never saw it i I never understood that interpretation at all so i was always really confused by how hardcore some people were about that it was kind of funny well you know now that i think about it after you guys talking um like Mandalorian women who are kind of the not fighters, that's not the right word, but warriors. Mandal- yeah, warriors, Mandalorian women warriors. I don't see them being romantic, just like the chess. You know, like we were talking about Thrawn the other day, how you just don't picture them being very shippy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, think, I know exactly yeah, yeah, what yeah. you mean. I mean, like, remember that episode with that has Ursa. Ren and Sabine's dad, whose name I don't remember now, but he like they I don't remember them having any chemistry at all. I don't remember them interacting at all. I certainly don't remember them like touching or anything. So I'm just like, yeah, or do, do the Mandalorian women just use men for breeding and they just don't actually give a fuck? Like I just, which I kind of love that idea, actually. I, like I would love to see that play out. But they're just yeah. like they're like a clan of Amazons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's totally true. And you know, I we've thought of, or we've talked over this before, but the Mandalorians, as far as the warriors, it's very woman dominated. You know, just like we've seen that in the chess ascendancy as well. The heads of the families tend to be male. It seems kind of the aristocrats or the politicians, but as far as the warriors, it does seem to be more woman oriented. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, that is a good question about exactly, you know, how Mandalorian men and women go about like courtship and so on. I never thought of that before. I think we need a show on Netflix, like Love is Blind, (laughs) but Love is Mandalorian. I would love that. (laughs) 10 out of 10 would watch. Yes, me too. All right. So let's to, to talk sort of at least like a little bit briefly about like what we think in terms of like, like which episode gives, you know, each character the best opportunity to, sh- to shine and so on. I think for some of these, I imagine, and we're just talking exclusively about like the ghost crew here, not some of the like other side characters. Like, I think in some cases here, like there may be some consensus. I know at least I have at least like two wild card picks. So like that's going to keep us from getting like total unanimity. So let's start, I'll just kind of go through like the whole, like the Spectre list. Um, so starting with Spectre 1, aka Kanan Jarrus, Jedi Knight. What do we think is like best Kanan episode? Um, Alice, I know you're not, you don't probably have like episodes memorized or anything. Do you have like a favorite Kanan moment? Yeah, you could even say that. Yeah, totally. Oh, a favorite moment. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think during Twilight of Apprentice, his kind of like, love and care for Ezra show so much. And then when he just gets blinded, it's heartbreaking. And then when Hera realizes he's blinded, also heartbreaking. It's just a heartbreaking moment. But him doing his whole sacrifice of himself is, of course, very, very moving. Um, I don't think it's anyone could disagree with that. But it's kind of the hardships. Of his yeah, I have Jedi Knight on my list too. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's it's as hard as it is to watch. It is really, really great, like epic Kanan storytelling. I mean, like th- to answer the question of like for whom and what cause would you sacrifice yourself is like kind of the ultimate character arc to witness totally. for him, which is hard to watch. Yeah, totally. I had like Kanan was one of those where I had like a split between like my heart and my head in terms of choice. My head went to Jedi Knight, just like you, Laura. And I think probably like objectively, that's the correct answer. I ended up going with my heart and I ended up going with Steps into Shadow, aka the season three opener, mainly because I love the scenes between Kanan and the Bendu in those episodes. I love just the Bendu as a character as like that weird force type character. And I love the kind of interaction and the like training that Kanan undergoes like you have that moment initially where like Kanan gives Bendu the Sith holocron to like safeguard it and he tells him it's evil and then the Bendu kind of counters back and he says that like oh an object can't be good or evil it depends on the user and how it's used which I think is a very kind of profound point and then all the kind of lessons that the Bendu is teaching him about how, like, the reason that he can't see anymore is because he's kind of cut himself off from the Force and from other people, and that he needs to reconnect in order to regain his sight. I think that's a really kind of powerful, like, mini arc that we get for Kanan. Yeah, definitely a solid Kanan content there. Yeah, so I, I very much like the kind of mini arc that he goes through there where he's like, almost he kind of starts in a position like not unlike Luke in The Last Jedi, where he's like kind of isolated, he's cut off, he's feeling a lot of guilt about losing Ahsoka and so on. And then he has to sort of, he starts to realize that he has to kind of get back into the fight. He has to be there for Ezra particularly. And so sort of like learns that over the course of those episodes. So I think that's a great Kanan episode. And so that's what I picked for that one. So for moving on to Spectre 2, a.k.a. Hera Syndulla, this, as we just talked about, is a little bit difficult for her. But what, what do you guys have for either a favorite Hera episode or a favorite Hera moment in the show? Either one. 
Um, I already mentioned mine. Homecoming, I think, was one of my one of the more Harris centric episodes. So I would probably give that one for her. Okay. Yeah, that one came to my mind too. And then also at the end, kind of her strength and resiliency in having a child with, you know, her deceased lover. I mean, that's, that's a, a lot to deal with. So kind of having her find joy again with these kind of horrible, really sad memories. I think that's that's just really nice to see the strength of a woman. Yep, that's a really good moment to bring up. I had as my choice for the best hair episode. I this is again kind of like wild card pick maybe, and that is from season two, and that's Wings of the Master. So that is the uh, the B wing episode. I think the the reason I kind of went with this one, and this is again another like head heart split where I had, and I kind of went with my heart, which is that like I think the episode shows off Hera doing what she does best, which is flying. You know, like she goes to I'm blanking on the exact name of the planet, but like she goes to the planet where like the B wing inventor guy is, and he's like, oh, like nobody can fly in, and like the actual like ship hasn't really been tested. And so like, it's going to take a particularly good pilot to kind of master it. And then as we see, like Hera is able to like figure out how to fly the ship and maneuver it and then eventually use it in combat. So I think it's a good episode in that way, kind of showcasing her abilities as a pilot. And so that's why I went with that one. Yeah, that's a solid one too. I like that one for Hera. All right, moving on to Spectre 3, AKA C110P, AKA Chopper. I love Chopper. <laughs> I do too, but I hate droid-centric episodes because they just are such nothing episodes. They feel like they're filler, and it's just my they're my least favorite brand of, of Star Wars. So my, I just had a Chopper moment that I really enjoyed. I couldn't tell you even in what season it takes place, sure. but there's a moment where he pushes a <laughs> black and red astromech out of like the, it's not the airlock, it's like the ramp or whatever of mm-hmm. the ghost when they're like in the atmosphere of a planet, so it just falls to its death and crashes on the surface i'm sure and it's like it's just a really funny dark moment for chopper it's just this purely chopper moment it must be early in one of the seasons like season one or two but it's just fucking delightful and i eat that shit up i remember when it happened i remember like laughing out loud it was just great (laughs) i don't have a favorite with chopper he's just he's just delightful and again especially the ones that are I know they're droid-centric, but mm-hmm. the ones with him and AP5 are really fucking funny. Yep. Yeah, I love Chop. He's such an asshole. Like, he reminds me of my cat, who's also an asshole. <laughs> yes, um, very much. Uh, but yeah, for, for Chopper, what I had as, as my favorite Chopper episode I had from season two, it's the Forgotten Droid. So this is aka the first appearance of AP5. So this is where like Chopper, you know, gets separated from the ghost crew for a very Chopper reason, which is that he wants a new leg, which I think is a great little bit there. And then he ends up like on the Imperial like cargo ship or whatever, and he meets AP5. And I think it's a great little like episode where you kind of see in part like the episode is about like the difference between how like the rebels and the Empire treat droids. Because like, for example, like Chopper tells AP5 that like he was a veteran of the Clone Wars and he got, you know, put back together after he crash landed. And AP5 is kind of amazed that like somebody would care that much about a droid. Whereas, like, you see with the Empire, like, AP5 is very much getting treated like an instrument, like a tool. And then ultimately, I think, as we see at the end of that episode, you know, like, for all of his kind of asshole qualities that Chopper has, like, it sort of ultimately reaffirms, like, Chopper's loyalty, which is, I think, something, Laura, you mentioned in the context when you were talking about twin sons, because AP5 gets gets broken down, and then ultimately Chopper gives up his new leg to save him, to give him the part. 
So yeah, I think it's a great Chopper episode. I think we kind of see all sides of his personality there. Very true. Yep. Um, so then moving on to Spectre 4, a.k.a. Garazeborelius, a.k.a. Zeb. This is another one where I think it might be a little bit, like the options are a little bit limited as with Hera. So, so what would you say for like favorite Zeb moment or episode? Totally like I mentioned earlier with the him learning about Callus and them kind yeah. of befriending each other. And then, of course, at the end when he realizes that like he wasn't at fault for destroying his whole country or whole culture, if I'm remembering that correctly. Maybe I'm not. If I'm not, edit it out, please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but him and Callus, I, I I, just, I love that episode because I grew to love Callus, even with yeah. his weird, like, chops. Is that the word for <laughs> Mutton chops. The mutton chops. <laughs> yes, very 19th century. Yes. So funny. Yes, yes. Yeah, Mama that's kind of the one that I I had on my list too. The episode, the honorable ones with him and Callus. Even though it's not really that good of a Zeb episode, it's really more it's more mm-hmm. Callus centric. But I I think the other the one that you're supposed to say is the one where he like finds discovers his planet and the remaining people, which is like great. But again, like I was I no one's watching this show for Zeb, so yeah. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, 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 and that is as you alluded. Yeah, that was my pick, Legends of the Lasat from season two. Yeah, I think that is that's like the. Core quote unquote correct answer to the extent you can say that like i think like it, it does a good job of kind of giving the background about like the lasats and you know zeb discovering that he's not the last one and him sort of realizing he has to kind of step up and be there for his people and so on kind of like reconnecting to them after being estranged there's some really great like shots and like music that's done there because there's a, there's a moment where they kind of where the ghost has to fly into the like cluster or whatever to get to lirasan and there's this kind of like like very kind of unusual for Star Wars type music where there's like, I don't know if it's a solo, either like a violin or a fiddle that's playing. It's really, really interesting. I noticed it the last time I was watching it. And I think it's not, it sounded like a cello to me, but oh, I, I thought the okay. same thing. It is, it is really, it is really strange. It's definitely a strange departure from the sort of usual tone that we get in terms of the music, but it's, it's good, different in a good way. I like it. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a good episode that g- gives him a moment to shine. He doesn't have many of them, much like Hera. So kind of running off the list, we got Sabine Wren, a.k.a. Spectre 5. What do we have? I, I think that might be a kind of consensus pick for best Sabine episode. Yeah, the Trials of Darksaber, yeah. that sort of, whatever that whole arc is called. Yeah. is uh, Yeah, I think that one's kind of it for me. Yeah, yeah handing over the Darksaber to Bo-Katan. That's a... Yeah, definitely. S- same here, I think, for all the reasons that we talked about with, with Trials of the Darksaber, for why that's great. I think that is also why it is the best Sabine episode. And then last but not least, we get to Spectre 6, a.k.a. Ezra Bridger. So what do we have for best Ezra episode? I love the episode where he disappears never to be heard from again. (laughs) 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 The finale is the best Ezra episode where we never see him. Or where he leaves. Um, In all seriousness, though, I actually do really love that interaction between him and Sabine where... They bas- they already have their plan in place of how Ezra is going to sort of make a break for it to go confront Thrawn himself and him and Sabine have sort of coordinated what that's going to look like and then they sort of signal to each other non-verbally when that is going to happen and it's for for me it was by far and away 
like no second option. It was the most like moving Mm. Sabine Ezra moment I had in the entire series. Cause I, like I said, I never watched the show for them. I never really cared that much about them. But in that moment I was like, Oh my God, like this is the moment finally where my, like these two have like finally ripped my heart out and they've, there really actually was an emotional moment that involved these two for me. Definitely. 100%. Ditto. Yeah, I had that also, which is the series finale, family reunion, farewell. Um, I think the thing that I like about those set of episodes is that we really kind of see every facet of Ezra on display there. You know, the episode opens with him and he's like holed up in the ghost and he's looking at like the hollow of his parents, like the picture that he's had, I think, from season one. So it kind of harkens back there to like when we first meet Ezra as this kind of orphan and he's like trying to figure out you know where his parents are and what happened to them and then you know we get for example that great moment when Thrawn brings him before Palpatine when he's like in the like the hunk of the ruins from the Jedi temple and like he gets the like temptation by Palpatine to open up the portal um, which I think is really great because in part it kind of it cements him as part of this legacy because you know like it puts him in line with you know Anakin and Luke and Ben and Ray as these like figures who have to you know face down Palpatine and I really love like what they do with like the whole hologram effect in that episode like with Palpatine because like you know when when you first see him in that scene you see him as kind of Chancellor Palpatine like the way you did throughout most of the prequels and he, as he's trying to like coax Ezra to do his bidding but then once Ezra like refuses and then like brings the whole temple down you have that effect where like the hologram starts like flickering in and out between like palpatine and then his sidious form and then it finally like lands on sidious and i think that's a great little moment of like an allegory metaphor made literal because it's like the kind of nice kindly side of palpatine being just this facade and then you ultimately see like the true form of what he really is i think i think is a great moment yeah, that's a lot of yeah. fun for Ezra. It's it's emotional, but it's really cool, though, the, the different ideas that they brought into that and then pulled off. Yeah. And then his, you know, what we see, obviously, you know, by the time of the end of the episode, like, we see his connection with, you know, animals and nature, like the way that he kind of brings in the Pergil as this kind of effort to finally defeat Thrawn, which I think is like, re- it's a really kind of like unique and like wild and wacky strategy, if you think about it, to to, to use the space whales to like, mm-hmm. to like hyperspace jump the Star Destroyers out of there, I think is really, really great. And then ultimately, you know, his like own sacrifice of himself to save his home world, where he's kind of like following in the footsteps of Kanan just a few episodes earlier, where he's kind of making that sacrifice and having learned that lesson from Kanan, I think is great. Great and sad. <laughs> yeah, and, and very sad. Yeah. Which is a good way to describe all of Rebels. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember the first time watching the series finale, like, being almost on the verge of tears, like, when it ends. It's really emotionally impactful. Oh, I definitely cried, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, so that's our sort of look through on the actual ghost crew characters and their kind of highlight moments. Uh, before we get into the game and sort of, like, closing out the episode, I just wanted to kind of open up for just... Like a kind of like miscellany space. Is there anything else you want either of you want to bring up about Rebels? Either either kind of like favorite moments or characters or like things you found funny or um, um I don't think so. We kind of covered everything that I wanted to talk about. Music came up a lot in our discussion, which was good because that yeah. was, if it didn't, I was gonna bring that up. Yeah, I I think we caught everything. My just recommendation to anyone listening who hasn't watched it before, just bear with the first season it can be a little <laughs> rough and a little unpleasant 
to I will defend honest. the first season. You, um, you, you can defend the first season, but I fucking hated Ezra just like I hated Ahsoka when we first met her. I thought she was so annoying. But it's worth sticking through it and it's worth watching it and getting a feel for so many things that you will not see in any other Star Wars. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. I, I kind of think of season one as like, I, I compare it a lot to like, in my brain, I think about it as like Parks and Rec. Like Parks and Rec had a really iffy first season. It just wasn't, it wasn't great for whatever reason, but you need to watch it now because Parks and Rec is a really good show. And if you're going to watch that show, you have to get through season one because you have to establish the relationship between Leslie and Anne. And if you're going to watch Star Wars Rebels, you have to watch season one because you get the character growth of Kanan becoming a mentor and becoming a teacher and becoming more secure and more competent in that role. And that evolves like a lot from the beginning of season one to the finale. And I also think that like the finale of season one is great because that's when we get Ahsoka back and a really, really, I think emotionally satisfying return. So that's it. I would defend season one just for that. <laughs> you do have to power through it because, yeah, I agree. It's If you're judging the entirety of the series on season one, you're not going to like it. But you got to push through because season three, two through four are really good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I guess the only thing that I wanted to bring up in this section before we get to the game is I would be remiss if in talking about, about Rebels, like I did not bring up this moment that happens in the show which is not only a great Rebels moment, but dare I say a great moment in all of Star Wars. I am referring, of course, to AP5 singing. Yes. (laughs) This is such a great moment of like Star Wars weirdness. It's something that like we'd never seen before and never really seen again. Like we do, like there are musical numbers in Star Wars. You've got like Jedi Rocks, for example, or like Laptinek and, you know, in Return of the Jedi. But we've never had a full-blown like musical type moment where a character just bursts into song spontaneously like you would if you were watching like grease or something (laughs) yeah yeah it brings a whole different level of goofiness to star wars which is great because you're right the musical moments that we do have already in the in the films are they're they're definitely goofy but this is like a it's a different level Yeah, because at least those moments are like, you've got like bands or something. So you could at least plausibly say, this is just like a character who never sings breaking out on the song. So I I just had to bring it up. Like it had to come up if we were talking about (laughs) Rebels as AP5 singing. It's so weird and so funny. And I just absolutely love it. Yeah, he's one of my favorite Rebels characters. (laughs) He's a great character. I wish we'd seen more of him in season four. He kind of disappears there, but. You know, that's just how he wanted things, Devor. Yeah, very true. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so to close out the episode, I I decided that we should play a game. And I decided to come up with a game that would be a kind of nod or homage to your guys' show or an aspect of your guys' show. (laughs) And that is one of the things that Forced Host is well known for is its liberal use of profanity. Let's put it that way. Our show has a potty mouth. (laughs) Yeah. So I wanted to create a game that would honor that. And so I have come up with this game, which is something I had like in my head. And then I finally like, like (laughs) I I knew we were going to be doing this episode. And I was like, this is a perfect opportunity to like actually use this. So as we all know, ever since Revenge of the Sith, every Star Wars movie has been rated PG-13. Per the guidelines of the Motion Picture Association of America, a PG-13 movie is allowed to use the word fuck at least one time, and no more than one time. So I thought that we could brainstorm where we would insert that one fuck into each of the PG-13 Star Wars movies in a game that I'm calling 
where the fuck? <laughs> so let's start off with, basically in release order. So start with Revenge of the Sith. So where are you guys putting that one fuck in Revenge of the Sith? Release order, and we're starting with Revenge of the Sith? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Revenge of the Sith and then sequel trilogy were the only Oh, mm. we have to skip the fir- fucking hell. All right. <laughs> I had- oh, sorry. I Did mine. I? Um, I'm going to I'm going to go a little liberal on this and add an IN. I'm going to say Yeah, you can do that. From the Emperor or Palps. Fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh Okay, before I get my Revenge of the Sith yeah. one, I just want to get the one that I wrote for Phantom Menace. Yeah, please I want do. One, please I wrote do. one yeah, for yeah, all yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, and it's you not even that good. <laughs> give all of them, by all means. Yeah, it's I don't not even do. that good. I just want to read it anyway, I just because I liked it. You were right about one thing, Master. The negotiations were fucking short. <laughs> perfect. Amazing. Oh, it's so stupid. No, but I do have a good one for Revenge of the Sith. Go and it, it is spoken, of course, by Mace Windu. Take a seat, motherfucker. Yes. <laughs> That's perfect. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love it. All right. So for, for my pick for Revenge of the Sith, I know that technically in canon now, this is not the first time that they have met. They have met other times before. Even so, I am giving my one fucking Revenge of the Sith to Obi-Wan on Utapau when Grievous busts out the forearms. I think my man is way too, like, stoic at that moment. I would be just, like, freaking the hell out. I know he's a Jedi Master, but even so. I'm, you would just drop a random F-bomb right there? Yeah, I imagine him just, like, <laughs> letting out a fuck right there. When that <laughs> I like it. All right, so, so, so now skipping ahead into the sequel trilogy, The Force Awakens. What do you got for there? Mm. Okay, I had two. Okay. Um, and I feel like... Whatever they, whatever, wherever they would be, it would definitely be Ray. I don't know if how much you guys have heard of Daisy Ridley doing random interviews, but I feel like she definitely has a like a fucking horrific potty mouth. Okay. So I think what I picked for her, this is a conversation between her and Finn at the beginning, and Finn's like uh, when they're being chased by like the Tie Fighters, and she's like on on Jack Jakku, and she's like, well, why are they firing at me? And so Finn is, says, they're after me. You're marked. And my in my headcanon, she responds, well, fucking thanks for that. When in reality, she just says, thanks for that. I love it. That's great. That's uh-huh. what I got. Um, I have when Han Solo meets up with Ray and Finn and he's like, yo, why do you need my help? Whatever, blah, blah, blah. And they're talking about BB-8. And Ray says, this droid's got to get to the resistance base as soon as possible. And then Finn says, or could say, He's carrying a fucking map to Luke Skywalker. <laughs> I that's love good. that. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Very nice. I like that. So um, my Force Awakens pick was so like when I was like trying to come up with some of these, what I basically did was like I pulled them the movies up on like Disney Plus and then kind of like quickly like scrolled through them to see if I could just like land on a moment. And fortuitously enough for when i pulled up the force awakens it was actually paused on what ended up being the perfect moment and i think it must have been paused there because i was like i think it was like putting together trivia for you guys and it was like yeah that sounds right (laughs) and so i am giving my one fuck in the force awakens to uncar plot when he offers to buy bb8 from ray 60 fucking portions hell yeah that crossed my mind devor (laughs) i did think about giving it to uncar plot i I thought that would have made sense too it's even great if you just imagine it in his voice. 60 fucking portions. <laughs> Very true. 
All right. So next one, Last Jedi. Where are we putting it in there? This is a hard one. Or at least it was a hard one for me. Yeah, yeah I think it was tricky. a little harder, too. Yeah. What do, yeah. What do you guys got? Uh, Laura, do you want to go first? Sure. I gave it to Carrie in this one. So fucking stand down now, Commander. That is an order. <laughs> nice. Let's see. Uh, Tavort, you have something before I... Yeah, I can give mine. So, yeah, as I mentioned, like, I was having a tough time with this one. I gave it to Snoke when he's cut in half. I imagine him... (laughs) There's that, like, shot where he, like, looks down and then kind of, like, looks up in shock and, like, you see the lightsaber kind of, like, half through him. I imagine him just letting one out right there, like, right before, you know, Kylo pulls the lightsaber back and he, like, falls A fart? Yeah. Oh, fuck, yeah. A shark? Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, letting out a fuck right there when he realized <laughs> that he's been betrayed. Yep. <laughs> all right. I'm going with Kylo Ren. I'll destroy her and you and all of it. Luke Skywalker. No. Strike me down anger and I'll always be with you. Just like your fucking father. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Alliteration, I approve. You're welcome. I, I, I remember that word from English class in high school. At least so I learned that, something in Louisiana. What? Wait, would that be Luke's last line of the intro of the movie? Like before the living Luke, uh, his last line. I think so. Just <laughs> like your fucking has, father. Um, he has a see you around kid. Oh, yeah, years. that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's all the same. It blends together. Right. I like yeah. it. Fucking see you around, kid. <laughs> you there, dude. Fuck off, right. motherfucker. <laughs> um, what about Rise of Skywalker? Um, I went with Chewbacca on this one. Uh, when Poe asks, how thick do you think that ice wall is <laughs> when they're flying through the Falcon? Uh, Chewbacca just screams, which I imagine translates to Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, oh man. Uh, let's see. I've had like many options in my list for do you have something yeah so when i was thinking about rise of skywalker i thought to myself like what's a line that could use a little like judge right like maybe a line that's let's say gotten memed and maligned a lot perhaps (laughs) so i have given Uh it to poe at the beginning of the movie somehow fucking palpatine returned (laughs) i like it my initial instinct was Dio being like, no fucking thank you. Um, but where I feel like it would fit the best would be in the opening crawl because that crawl was formatted very poorly. Yep. Everything about it was wrong and inconsistent and incoherent. But I think had it started off with the dead fucking speak, it would have nice. gotten my attention in a better way. Yeah, with fucking in all caps, but all the rest of it in lower caps. <laughs> yep. Yes. I like that. Uh, That's a good thought. I didn't even think about the opening crawls, but yeah, that's a good place where you could insert them. Uh I really like those ones. Those are some really, really good ones. (laughs) (laughs) If only Star Wars would, you know, take advantage of that PG-13 rating. Just drop one right right in. Exactly. (laughs) So much street cred. Make fuck canon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) make fuck canon. (laughs) Yes. Do it. We get uh, 50% of the profit. But, I mean, they've said damn, right? Or ass. They've they have said things. ass. They've said hell, I think. Yep. Yes, they've said hell. Yeah. I'll see you in hell. And, yeah, I think Big Ass Door is in uh, The Last Jedi. So yeah. we, gotta, we get some ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can do it. 
But yeah, that's just the fuck is the final frontier for them. They got to do it at some point. (laughs) All right. So as a way to, you know, close things out and and wrap things up, I just ask both of you to recommend a piece of Star Wars media to the listeners. And this could be literally anything. It could be like watch one of the movies, book, comic, show, arc of episodes, anything like that. Hmm. I'm going to recommend for everyone to give Attack of the Clones a second chance. All right. (laughs) All right. Think of it from the complexity of the politics, from what happens because of those politics. Also, the bomb-ass lightsaber battles. We had never seen so many lightsabers at once until that movie. All right. So just kind of think of it from the point of what have we not seen before and what did this lead us to get? All righty. All right. I like that Fair answer. Enough. It's a very Alice mm-hmm. answer. I like that. Yep. Yeah. You got it. Anytime. Here all week. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. That's a hard one because I think that like my instinct is to go with a book, which I know not everyone is into like Star Wars reading, but that's fine. I was really resistant to reading Dark Disciple for a long time and I... I could say that I don't know why, but I do know why. It's because it's set in the prequel era, and that's just <laughs> not my favorite my favorite era of Star Wars, which is why Alice and I are a good balance, because it is her favorite era of Star Wars. Damn um, skippy. So I, I was really resistant to reading it, because I was just like, I just don't care about this time period. I don't care about what's going on. I don't really care about the characters in this book. So I put off reading it for a long time, and I regret that so much, because I finally read it like last year sometime. And now it is my number one favorite Star Wars book. There's not Mm -hmm. a ton of like, I feel like the unfortunate thing about Star Wars storytelling is that we just don't get like a ton of romance. Like you get a little bit, you get like one romance in in each trilogy. And even then it's like, they're just not that big. Like for me, Han and Leia was just kind of like a thing that happened in the original trilogy it wasn't like my focus or the thing that i latched on to yeah it's Um, air quote romance right it's like it's just it's so like pg romance i think and so i I just like never i don't know never blew my skirt up i guess but like Mm -hmm. dark disciple i think is like the most one of the more romantic star stories in star wars storytelling and it's surprise it's one of those things that will just like surprisingly grab you because like Quinlan Voss and Asajj Ventress like you would never think that they never one should be in a story together you wouldn't think that they would make like they would have good chemistry you wouldn't think that anybody would care about what either of them are doing in this time period that the story takes place mm-hmm. I'm telling you though it works like Christy Golden is the author and she just like knocked it out of the park with this book. It's so good. If you're one of the people like me, who's just like thirsting for number one, a really well-written story. Number two, a really like epic romance, then I would 100% recommend dark disciple because it's, it's really awesome. Like we talked a lot about star Wars rebels in this episode today. And we had so many, we had so much time of doing the will they won't they with Kanan and Hera or the like, oh, okay, they, they are established. They do. They, it's already been done. Like we don't need to like talk about it anymore. And then we get this like tiny little taste of romance from them. And I really love that love story, but like, it's just so disappointing that we don't get more of it. And so if you are one of those people that just wanted more of something like that, like I hi- go check out Dr. Cycle hundred percent recommend. Yeah, it's so good. And just to add a little bit to that. So these episodes, the book is based on episodes that were never made. And Katie Lucas is the one who 
essentially invented Asajj. So they're based on episodes that she wrote that weren't Wars. made. of Yes, of the Clone Wars. And I mean, it is, I'm not a very emotional person, but when I finished it, I was a little weepy. Not going to yeah. lie. Yeah. Sad. So good. It's good. So good. Oh my God. Like, whoa. Especially if you listen to Dooku Jedi Lost before you read it, I think that makes it even better. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can confirm. Dark Disciple is very, very good. And I'm glad that they at least managed to tell that story in book form, even if they weren't able to do the episodes that they originally envisioned for that. Yeah, definitely. All right. So on that note, thank you very, very much for coming on the show and for talking about Rebels with me and for playing my game. I really, really enjoyed this. You guys have given me like a lot to think about in terms of like insights and like perspectives on certain episodes and characters and arcs and so on. And so I hope that the audience ends up getting a lot from this too and sort of enhances their own viewing and consumption of Rebels. Yeah, thanks for having us. I mean, usually we're just kind of like goofy and dicking around. So this was (laughs) nice to kind of dive a little deeper. Yeah, it's a departure from our sort of regular content. So we appreciate (laughs) the opportunity to come on. And yeah, thanks for inviting us, Devor. Yeah, thank you. So as always, what to expect on the next episode. Episode 8 is going to drop on the 8th of November. And on that episode, we're going to be taking a look at Star Wars trailers. So Star Wars trailers have, over the years, evolved to become a kind of genre onto themselves, distinct from your kind of -of run-of-the-mill movie trailers. And so I'm going to spend some time to talk about them. I'm going to look at some of my favorite trailers that we've seen over the years, break them down, talk about what makes them good, and so on. So you're not going to want to miss that one. As always, make sure that you are subscribed to the show if you are not, so that you can stay up to date with the latest episodes as they drop. Please make sure to rate and review the show if you are listening to it on a platform that allows you to do that. Um, a Large Review of the Force is on Twitter, so you can follow us there at A Larger Review Pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Demondum. And until next time, look for the Force and you will always find me. <laughs> <laughs>